Ah, good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 94 of the Prancing Pony Podcast, where tonight, well, we're finally heading out on the road that goes ever on and on. Or at least we're opening the door that leads out onto that road. Well, there you go. Folks, we'll head over to the common room and start the party in just a moment. But first, I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the man of the West, the phallahide to my harfoot, Alan Sisto. Oh, thank you, Sean. I always have preferred hunting to tilling, of course, so that there makes go. sense. <laughs> Folks, today we are finally... I knew that. That's why. That's why I gave you that. <laughs> uh, Of course. Well, I'm probably more steward than phallahide, but we'll just leave it there. Today we are finally diving into the Lord of the Rings for the first time on the Prancing Pony podcast. It is Yay. it is a truly momentous occasion, isn't it? It is. It really is. It is. It is. And I understand that some hobbits are preparing a party of special magnificence to celebrate. <laughs> well, don't get too excited. I think it's actually the birthday of somebody rather important that they're celebrating. Yeah. Or to someone's, for that matter. Yeah, good point. But not surprisingly, we won't be getting to that party tonight because we're going to be spending this episode working our way through, dun, 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 the prologue. The prologue. That's right. An entire episode dedicated to the thing you usually don't read. <laughs> But you should, because well, it's you should. Tolkien. And, and actually, that's true. People read the prologue to Tolkien, but they don't read prologues to anything else, do they? That's probably true, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we'll even get a few minutes in on Tolkien's famous forward, too. So we've got which a lot of people really don't read. Yeah, which, yeah exactly. Seriously. <laughs> we just, next up, the index. Um, we've, got, we've got a lot on our plate. But before we begin, it's time for season three's first <laughs> Philology Fair. Huzzah! Thank you, sir. <laughs> For our first philology fair of the season, I want to talk about two really cool words we're going to be seeing in the prologue. And of course, one of them is a word we're going to be saying a lot over the next six seasons. Mm -hmm. Today, folks, I want to talk about the words Shire and Farthing. Hmm. Now, of course, we've been talking about the Shire for a long time now. And as Tolkien fans, we all sort of instinctively talk about Bilbo Baggins as coming from the Shire. So it's easy to forget that in The Hobbit, Bilbo's home is not referred to as the Shire at all. Not no. one single time. Not once. That's absolutely right. He's said to come from the hill and even from Hobbiton, but never the Shire. That's correct. Tolkien actually doesn't use the word Shire until the prologue to The Lord of the Rings. And soon after that, he defines it as the region of the authority of their thane, the Hobbit's thane, of course, which is divided into four quarters, the Farthings. Yep. So these are both fantastic words that I wanted to talk about. So here we are. Now, unsurprisingly, these are both old English words that have fallen out of common use in English, which Tolkien has brought back. I yeah. know. Really surprising. He does he that does all the that. time, right? <laughs> exactly. So Shire, let's start there. Shire is the modern equivalent of Old English shire, meaning administrative district or jurisdiction. Not large scissors. <laughs> not shears. Sure. <clears throat> not, not shears. Yeah. No. <laughs> okay. Um, no, in Anglo-Saxon times, the, the Shire or the Shire was the, the sort of the typical administrative division of the kingdom. It was the, mm -hmm. the local government. You know, right. England was divided into shires the way it's now divided into counties. In fact, mm -hmm. shire and county started as two words for the same thing. When the Normans conquered England, they uh, used their... Uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's been like a the... thousand years, Alan. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just, you know, I'm just saying... <laughs> Oh, Man, are you, st are you still bent out of shape over that Norman it's, it's conquest? It's like when the villain shows up in a vaudevillian thing. He twirls his French mustache and we The Battle do. of Hastings was rigged. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, when the Normans conquered England, they used the French yeah. word comté, which is basically county, the realm of a count, uh, mm-hmm. to translate the Old English word sheer. Okay. Now, over time, as Norman terms began to prevail, especially in you know government sort of contexts, the word county simply replaced the word shire in everyday use. Mm-hmm. But the word shire does still exist, primarily in place mm. names. Many of the modern counties of England and also Scotland and Wales still have shire or sheer in their names. Uh, ah, Lancashire, yes. Yorkshire, um, probably Oxfordshire. many more. There you go. Many more yeah, shures yeah. that I can't really think of right now. <laughs> uh, and I know we've got some listeners in some of those shures too. So Yes, uh, we do. So if yes, we forgot we any, please let us know. Of course. So that's shire. Now, farthing, on the other hand, simply means a, a fourth part of something. Um, it hmm. comes from the Old English fairthing, okay. which was a derivative of the common word for a fourth, you know, a fraction of a fourth, fairthe. Right, right. It was used in Old English to refer to a fourth part of pretty much anything, including an area of land. So you might hear a, a reference to a fourth of a hide or a fourth of an acre as a farthing or a fairthing. Um, okay. I can't find any source that says that the Anglo-Saxons ever used it as an official division, kind of like, you know, like the hobbits do with the North Farthing, the West Farthing. Right. Like a specific I, geographical location. Right. right. Like a specific unit of, yeah. of, a, of a shire, you know. I, I can't find that they ever did that. But I did learn while researching this that Iceland was once divided exactly oh. like that. Iceland oh was historically divided into four farthings. And I believe the Icelandic word is something like fjordungar. Um, which are named sure. after the f- four. P- <laughs> that sounds authentically Icelandic. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say yes. I buy that one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It's so it's so great pronouncing foreign words around you because you can you can't. You I'm can't just going to nod my head and say, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. sir. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in Iceland, these historical four farthings or Fjordingar are named after the four points of the compass, just like the farthings oh, of the Shire. So, so it was a Germanic okay. thing that Tolkien was referencing. But not a thing, because thing is actually a word too. Was, right? That's why I, I just said want to make that. sure yeah. we're clear on that. That's why I said that. Yeah, thing, like the all thing. Yeah, that's yeah, like right, the right. like the council or the parliament. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, that is interesting because, of course, when I think of farthing, I think of British currency. Uh, I know there was mm-hmm. a, a British coin called a farthing that was worth well a fourth of a penny uh, that had right. been minted since the Middle Ages, and well, it was around even into the 20th century, back in the days of the old pre-decimal currency system of Britain, the pound, oh, yeah, shillings, yeah. pence days that. Well, really, they weren't even that long ago. Um, That's true. I know some of our listeners remember that system, and I cannot help but think of Professor Tom Shipping just telling us recently how each volume of The Lord of the Rings cost a guinea in hardback when they released. And I believe that's 21 shillings. That's (laughs) right. That's right. But I digress. That uh, that pre-decimal system was not that long ago. No, no. You know, what's fascinating about that is that uh, just like with county, there's another French word that sort of took over in everyday use in, in English, and this word can mean specifically a geographic area, or at least here in the United States, it can mean a coin, a unit of currency, and the word huh. I'm thinking of is one oh, I said a little yeah. while ago, quarter. Yeah, yeah. quarter. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, there again, quarter sort of taken over for farthing and, and has all As these As county has taken over for shire. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what Tolkien's doing by, by taking these words, you know, shire and farthing, and using these as official terms for units of hobbit government, such as it is, as we'll see later in this episode. Um, What he's doing is he's resurrecting these old English words that have fallen out of use and and have been replaced by these French terms. It's a little bit more of that uh, right English goodliness of speechcraft that we've talked about a few times, you know, the the return to native English and Germanic derived words. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's great here because it has an effect, I think, to the reader that goes beyond just like reinforcing his personal 
you know, preference for Germanic words. We all know right, that he like was fond of that. And, you know, silver versus argent or something. Yeah. 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 But but I think beyond just sort of being something he liked, um, these words have an effect on us because they are real words that right. they, ex- they do exist in the past of our language and we can see remnants of them in our everyday language. And I think using these old, you know, these archaic words just kind of gives the world a kind of remoteness, you know, an archaic quality, a, a pastoral quality that it just wouldn't have if he called it the county. <laughs> can you imagine it just being the county <laughs> instead of the shire or, you know, dull. the South Quarter? You know, it just would well, not that have. That conjures up images of New Orleans, but. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. yeah. I'll have to remember yeah. that. Maybe I'll, I'll stop using those Frenchified words and I'll tell people that I live in the South Farthing of Orange Shire, California. No, seriously, <laughs> the, uh, the more we dig into Tolkien's work and the more we unveil the the etymology of the words that Tolkien, and I might add this, very carefully chose, very uh, the, carefully. More, the more impressive and impactful his work becomes. Yeah. Yep. Well, one more thing before we start. Once more, we want to thank Emily Austin Design for sponsoring this week's episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. You know, as we've walked through the legendarium on the show, one of the most striking elements of Tolkien's works is how they can conjure such powerful images in our minds. Yeah, very true. And when we attended MythMood back in June, we got to spend a little bit of time with Emily Austin. She's a fine artist who's passionate about capturing and creating those powerful images. Through bright, colorful, and really wonderfully detailed paintings, Emily brings glimpses of the wonder and beauty of Tolkien's works right here into the primary world. So much so, in fact, that I bought one of her originals myself. So You did, and it was beautiful. It so It is a beautiful piece. Folks, you really should check out Emily Austin Design on Facebook for frequent doses of artwork inspired by Tolkien along with other master storytellers. Mm-hmm. Prints and originals are available for purchase, and you can even commission Emily to create a one-of-a-kind Tolkien painting just for you. And as a special thanks to listeners of the Prancing Pony podcast, Emily Austin Design is offering a 10% discount off any website purchases through September 30th. Simply visit emilyaustindesign.com shop and use code BREE to secure your discount. Once again, that's emilyaustindesign.com shop. Discount code BREE. And you've got just a couple of weeks left to take advantage of that. And we'll be sure to put that link along with links to her social media channels in our show notes for you as well. That's right. Well, I think it's time we cracked open this book, shall we? I think we shall. Let's do it. All right. Well, you know, we're going to talk about the forward and the prologue. So we're actually going to talk about the forward that you all don't know. It's the original forward. (laughs) That's one that most of you really haven't read. Right. Yeah. Uh, In fact, I had not read it. I've only seen it in the in the Lord of the Rings Reader's Companion. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, it's really interesting. It included a dedication to, quote, all admirers of Bilbo, but especially my sons and my daughter, and to my friends, the Inklings. To the Inklings, because they have already listened to it with a patience and indeed with an interest. To my sons and my daughter for the same reason, and also because they have all helped me in the labors of composition. Very sweet I would just say... Dedication. It is a sweet little dedication. And after reading some of the stuff in Humphrey Carpenter's biography of the Inklings, I don't think they always listen to it with patience. So he's being being kind to his friends. Very generous. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But no, he he went on in that original foreword to talk about the the lengthy time of writing the book, which we talked about last time. He talked about letters from people both in England and across the water who share his interest in this almost forgotten history. Yep. Yeah. So it's nice to know that he actually was thinking about an, an occasional American now and then. Every once in a while, you know, we hadn't freaked him out too much with uh, with all, oh, all of our the fan letters yeah, all the fan from stuff. rabid hippies in the 1960s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, later on, though, he actually re- expressed regret at this yeah. original forward. In, in one of his own personal copies of the first edition, he wrote, confusing as it does real personal matters with the machinery of the tale is a serious mistake 
Yeah. I and mean, I it's an I, interesting take. I, I guess I can see where, you know, where he's coming from there, yeah. you know? Well, it, it takes him out of, I just, I, I, it, I, it takes him out of that translator role, which we've, we've talked about and we're going to talk a little bit about. Right. Right. And kind of, yeah. And, and yeah, to talk about it as a, as a forgotten history and then also to talk about how long it took him to write it, you know? Yeah. It and just, to talk it, about the inklings in his family and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, it is kind of mixing voices a bit, so I can see that. He does talk a little bit, though, still about the timeline, so I think that part's okay. But it's not so much the process as it is, you know, how it impacted the story, I think. But uh, yeah, we'll, get, true, we'll get on true. with that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we'll get on with that now. I'm going to read the first couple paragraphs of the forward to the second edition, and then we'll, we'll start. And that is the one that should be available in yeah. your book that you have at home. Absolutely. If you don't have it, get it. But... Um, If you don't have it, you're probably not listening to this show, let's be honest. (laughs) All right. This tale grew in the telling until it became a history of the Great War of the Ring and included many glimpses of the yet more ancient history that preceded it. It was begun soon after The Hobbit was written and before its publication in 1937. But I did not go on with this sequel, for I wished first to complete and set in order the mythology and legends of the Elder Days, which had then been taking shape for some years. Side note. For like 20 years, right? I mean, that started in 1916, 1917. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, it's already, you know, taken shape for 20 years in his Mm -hmm. mind. So no wonder he wanted to spend some time on on that. So he says, I desire to do this for my own satisfaction. And I had little hope that other people would be interested in this work, especially since it was primarily linguistic and inspiration and was begun in order to provide the necessary background of history for Elvish tongues. When those whose advice and opinion I sought corrected little hope to no hope, I went back to the sequel, encouraged by requests from readers for more information concerning hobbits and their adventures. But the story was drawn irresistibly towards the older world, and became an account, as it were, of its end and passing away before its beginning and middle had been told. The process had begun in the writing of The Hobbit, in which there were already some references to the older matter, Elrond, Gondolin, the High Elves, and the Orcs, as well as glimpses that had arisen unbidden of things higher or deeper or darker than its surface. Durin, Moria, Gandalf, the Necromancer, the Ring. The discovery of the significance of these glimpses and of their relation to the ancient histories revealed the Third Age and its culmination in the War of the Ring. I'm I'm home now. I've started reading yeah, The Lord of the Rings I know. again. It feels it just feels so good to settle into it, doesn't it? It's like it really yeah, does. Yeah. It really does. I have to say to our listeners, you know, we've spent the last well, goodness, two and a half years now mm-hmm. um in the Silmarillion and the Hobbit. But this is really where where our hearts are, I think. Uh, yeah. As much as we've enjoyed those. The- it, it's true. And, and I I talk about how, I mean, I love the Silmarillion. The, oh, yeah. the Silmarillion yeah. was one that when I first read the Silmarillion, I was I was hooked. And um, I still I still think of the Silmarillion a lot. And it, and it is, uh, it oh, is yeah. a favorite of mine. But every time I get back to Lord of the Rings, I think, no, this is this is really yeah. what I love. This is, is this is where I belong. You know, yeah. like you said, you're home now. Yeah. It really feels that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, this forward. And, Go ahead. I'm sorry. And, well, and it's it's so interesting to to see. You know, we talked so much in the last episode about the the painstaking process of creating this book for Tolkien, mm-hmm. and um, and how he really wanted to write the Silmarillion and things like that. And and it's interesting to see him refer to some of that here. You know, yeah. Um, the this this idea that he wanted to complete and set in order the mythology and the legends of the Elder Days. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, I think. Uh, he talks about the end and passing away of the older world. You know, right? This story, Lord of the Rings, basically uh, sort of tells the ending of a story mm-hmm. that was in his mind, but yeah. that he yeah. had not completely written yet. 
hadn't um, been able to, to get the beginning or middle of those stories out. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's like he's releasing the end before uh, before yeah. the beginning and the middle. Has and I think come that's out. why we still why we still have such you know fondness for the Silmarillion. Yeah, yeah. Because it sheds so much light on the Lord of the Rings. I mean, yeah. The first three or four times I read the Lord of the Rings, I read it without having the context of the Silmarillion. And after that, after I finally read the Silmarillion, well, now I'm reading the Lord of the Rings differently every single time. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. and I think. And I think it's because of the Silmarillion that, in a way, I feel even more like home now. You know, it's, yeah. it's that it's completed it in a way. Because you, now you I be, understand that context of the right. beginning of the story. And even you can approach it with that knowledge of of all those stories that are mm-hmm. only referred to here, and you you really feel like part of the intended audience for this book because you understand oh, yeah. all those textual ruins and things like that. Yeah, he even mentions the textual ruins. He just doesn't call them that. What does he say? Uh, that um, oh goodness. Uh, where is it? Let's see. He kind of talks about it. He says um, some references to the older matter. Oh, the, these glimpses and their relation to ancient histories revealed yeah. the Third Age and its culmination in the War of the Ring. Yeah. These glimpses and their relation to the ancient histories. Absolutely. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, you know, Tolkien himself had said in one of his letters, he had said that Lord of the Rings is really more of a sequel to the Silmarillion yeah. than it was to The Hobbit. Oh, of course. Now, I mean, I think he said that in one of his letters to Stanley Unwin while, when he was trying to talk him out of publishing The Lord of the Rings, <laughs> as we talked about last time. But it's still, I mean, it's, a, it's yeah. an accurate it's ob- true, observation. Though, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, it is. Uh, and certainly, it, it's, it covers it in that sort of grand scope that The Hobbit does not. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, there's the, the Hobbit is this wonderful little, you know, micro vision mm-hmm. of, uh, of something, you know, of one tale happening mm-hmm. in the midst of all of, all of Middle Earth. A very intimate look at one mm-hmm. tale, which would not have really been all that significant no, if it weren't it for- It would have earned nothing more than, let's say, a footnote in the Annals right. of History, I think we'll right. read later. <laughs> yeah, we're getting ahead uh, so, of ourselves, I guess. I know. So this foreword was written in 1965. Uh, he wrote it in part, and we're not going to get into this because that this is a whole other sidebar, but part of the reason that he wrote the new foreword was to reassert copyright after the infamous Ace paperback situation here in the U.S. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, and and- and, and and in brief, just for folks who don't know about it, that was basically uh, a publishing house had basically published an illicit version of yeah, The Lord of the Rings. In pirated paperback. version, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Arguing that's, that it had fallen into the uh, public domain, which of course it had not. Yeah, I, I don't know how they got there, but that, that, that is a, a huge can of worms that yeah. I don't think we have time to get into. But no, it's, no. A, it's a fascinating story if you if you're not familiar with it. Yeah, it is. And, you know, Humphrey Carpenter talks about it at exactly pretty, pretty at length in the, in the biography. Yeah. Now, interestingly, though, if we look at all the facts that we've learned over the years um, in, in researching everything from Hammond and Skull to Christopher Tolkien to John Ratliff, uh, we actually see that Tolkien was either mistaken or had forgotten or maybe was relying on inaccurate records. And, you know, this is nearly 30 years later. So, of course, that's to be, yeah, to yeah. be expected. He can't go to his search engine and type you know, the, the word or two that he wants to right. use to find the timeline like <laughs> and we can. look at any, and find date stamps for all of his files right, and everything. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. when did I, when did I make that a PDF? Oh yeah, no. Right. Okay. No, I mean, he, he, he couldn't do that. So he's looking at manuscripts or he's looking at notes or whatever. And he kind of got a few things wrong. He didn't begin soon after The Hobbit was written. Uh, right. He began it three months after the publication of The Hobbit, which is something we talked about last episode. Right. I, I think that's probably it to cover under the first couple paragraphs. And then I want you to read a little bit as well. Okay. Those who had asked for more information about hobbits eventually got it, but they had to wait a long time, for the composition of The Lord of the Rings went on at intervals during the years 1936 to 1949, a period in which I had many duties that I did not neglect, and many other interests as a learner and teacher that often absorbed me. 
The delay was, of course, also increased by the outbreak of war in 1939, by the end of which year the tale had not yet reached the end of Book One. In spite of the darkness of the next five years, I found that the story could not now be wholly abandoned, and I plodded on, mostly by night, till I stood by Balin's tomb in Moria. Mm. There I halted for a long while. It was almost a year later when I went on, and so came to Lothlorien and the Great River, late in 1941. Mm. In the next year, I wrote the first drafts of the matter that now stands as Book 3, and the beginnings of Chapters 1 and 3 of Book 5. And there, as the beacons flared in Anorian and Theoden came to Harrodale, I stopped. Foresight had failed, and there was no time for thought. Wow. Kind of written himself into a corner, apparently, at that point. Yeah, I think so. He, he kind of got to a point where he wasn't sure what happened next, and he, yeah. he didn't really have time to figure it out. Exactly. I'll come so. back to this when I have a little more time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he says the composition went on at intervals from 36 to 49, but we know that he actually started in December 1937. Mm-hmm. Um, the last date, you know, I, I'm going to say that's that's right, but it is and it isn't. He actually finished writing Lord of the Rings in the summer of 1948. If you look at letter 117, he he's telling somebody that, hey, I just finished the last manuscript, the last chapter, I, I'm done. And that was was referencing that time frame. Right. But he hadn't completed the final typescript. He was still working on his... Uh, typescript instead of the manuscript. So maybe that's what he was thinking about here. And I think that makes sense because, I mean, yeah. you know, as he was completing that's his typescript, he was going back and editing and things like oh, that. Of course, always. And that's where, we, that's where we came up with that 12-year figure that we mentioned in the last episode, yeah. 37 yeah. to 49. So, yeah, I think exactly. you're probably right. Yeah. And he says that when war broke out in 1939, that, that the tale had not yet reached the end of book one. But then mm-hmm. on February 2nd, 1939, he actually wrote a letter to Alan and Unwin, and this is letter number 35, saying that he had reached chapter 12 at the end of the previous school term. Hmm. Now, at that point in the process, of course, as Hammond and Skull point out, oh, chapter 12, yeah. as originally conceived, was book two, chapter one, as published. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's you know only a chapter further than he than he mentioned true. here in the That's forward, true. but it was it was slightly different. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe he felt like he hadn't reached the end of book one. Just, I'm felt, sure. Yeah. I'm sure he yeah. felt like this was just a never ending deal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we get a little bit of, of how he was sending it to his son uh, and how much more time it took. So then he goes on to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, getting the typescripts uh, done, you know, not by mm-hmm. anybody else, but by himself. I love that quote about uh, mm-hmm. professional typing by the by 10 me. fingered. <laughs> Ten fingered, I love that. Because <laughs> you could just see him. Obviously, he was a hunter and pecker. Yeah. 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 Tick, 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 tick. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I'm going to go ahead and read the next paragraph. There's a, a really interesting thing here, and and some typical wonderful Tolkien snark that must be read. Mm. Yep, I know where you're going. The Lord of the Rings has been read by many people since it finally appeared in print. And I should like to say something here with reference to the many opinions or guesses that I have received or have read concerning the motives and meaning of the tale. The prime motive was the desire of a tale-teller to try his hand at a really long story that would hold the attention of readers, amuse them, delight them, and at times maybe excite them or deeply move them. As a guide, I had only my own feelings for what is appealing or moving, and for many, the guide was inevitably often at fault. Some who have read the book, or at any rate have reviewed it, have found it boring, absurd, or contemptible. I have no cause to complain since I have similar opinions of their works, or of the kinds of writing that they (laughs) evidently prefer. Man, I love that. That's so great. Yeah. It is great. The feeling is mutual. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but even, and I love the, the snark, it's really subtle, but he says, some who have read the book or at any rate have reviewed it. The implication being, of course, that, that many who have reviewed, reviewed it, it did have not, not read, read it. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he says, 
But even from the points of view of many who have enjoyed my story, there is much that fails to please. It is perhaps not possible in a long tale to please everybody at all points, nor to displease everybody at the same points. For I find from the letters that I have received that the passages or chapters that are to some a blemish are all by others specially approved. Can you say Tom Bombadil? Uh, I mean, you know, some people complain about <laughs> Or the about talking him. fox. Yeah, there's so many of those things oh, that yeah, like, some yeah. people just really can't stand. And, I skip X yeah. or Y every time, people say. And you're just like, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, he says, the most critical reader of all, myself, now finds many defects, minor and major. But being fortunately under no obligation either to review the book or to write it again, he will pass over these in silence. Except one that has been noted by others. The book is too short. <laughs> he has I love such that. a phenomenal way with words. It's so great. It's so great. Uh, it, that's such a great little punchline at the very end of that isn't paragraph. It, yeah. it is. Okay, before we get going here, though, I actually want to talk about something that's not said here. Mm-hmm. That phrase at the very beginning about having been read by many people since it finally appeared in print, that isn't what actually was written in 1965. Um, Hammond and Skull relate that in the second edition, this continued, this is in 1965, when it appeared in print 10 years ago. So for the Allen and Unwin Deluxe Edition in 1969, the number was changed to 15. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can see where this mm-hmm. is going, right? Right, yeah. So on, uh, on December 27th, 1976, Christopher Tolkien wrote to Rainer Unwin and with his characteristic style said, I don't think one can go on dating year by year, can one? Or we shall end up making my father say, The Lord of the Rings has been read by many people since it finally appeared in print a century ago. <laughs> <laughs> With, with the added uh, oddness of how is he still around to right talk exactly about it, essentially to say ago. well yeah. it's been yeah two hundred yeah. years ago it was read yeah. a lot by a lot of people yeah <laughs> I love wow, that it's like he just wrote this yesterday yeah I know I it's know great. yeah yeah it's fantastic that is good stuff Christopher Tolkien just thinking ahead going yeah we can't keep changing this yeah it just doesn't make any sense yep that's great. but yeah I mean I love the, it's such a great paragraph for just all oh, the snark is. and and also just the just the, the truth to it you know the, yeah. The, the stuff about the, you know, these little blemishes, the things mm-hmm. that some people consider blemishes, the, the, the fact that he just says, you know, his motive was just, I wanted to try my hand at telling a really long story. Isn't that amazing? I was like, you know, I just want to go for it. I just want to write a really yeah. long story that people like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you, you did it. <laughs> Let me just say yeah. congratulations. <laughs> you did. You did. Yeah. And I think it did everything that you wanted it to do. It hold our attention, amuse, delight, excite, deeply and move. Deeply move. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, every single one of those and many times over, I have to say. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but of course, the most famous section of this forward and the one most often quoted is this upcoming section about his cordial dislike for allegory. Sean, could you read some of that for us? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> I thought you might. As for any inner meaning or message, it has in the intention of the author none. It is neither allegorical nor topical. As the story grew, it put down roots into the past and threw out unexpected branches but its main theme was settled from the outset by the inevitable choice of the ring as the link between it and the hobbit. The crucial chapter, The Shadow of the Past, is one of the oldest parts of the tale. It was written long before the foreshadow of 1939 had yet become a threat of inevitable disaster, and from that point the story would have developed along essentially the same lines if that disaster had been averted. So they're basically what he's saying is, I had all this stuff figured out long before World War II and... Yeah. World War II did not influence the direction of the story at all. No. He goes on to say, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations, and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, 
with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purposed domination of the author. Mm. Very well said. A critical concept. A critical concept. And we talk so much about it that it, you know, probably doesn't need a lot of commentary from us right now. But I mean, this is where it comes from. It's right here in the foreword to Lord of the Rings. Exactly. And we'll see as we look through a lot of instances of applicability. But we really have to try to avoid looking at this in any way as allegorical. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I love this line. I prefer history true or feigned. Even a Mm. fake history, a feigned history, a made-up history like he did here, is preferable to a one-on-one, you know, sort of preachy allegory. Mm -hmm. And indeed, I I love a feigned history. You know, a mythology is what he's talking about, a a made-up story that, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and as a a medievalist, he would have known tons of these. You know, there's so many things in the Middle Ages that purported to be history, but we know they're not true. Yeah, yeah. But, and even the authors at the time probably knew. Probably you know? so, yeah. yeah. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some lessons there and some universals that you can take from exactly. them, take from them that you wouldn't have if it were a, a true one-to-one allegory. And yeah. I think that's the power of it. Yeah. It, the applicability is broader. And mm-hmm. I think that's important yes, because allegory is by its nature much, much, much more narrow. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, yeah. There's only one, there's one right way to read it if it's an allegory. Exactly. And, and that yeah. does, that narrows it. Yeah. If you misidentify one element of the allegory, the entire thing is lost. Right. Uh, but with applicability, you might misunderstand one thing, but something else, you know, completely fits. So. Right. Uh, really good stuff. And we will come back to that a lot as we as we study this over the next five years. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I should add, by the way, that this position about uh, allegory was also stated quite clearly in several letters. I'm not going to read the quotes, uh, but if you want to look them up in the letters, I'd refer you to letter 109 to Stanley Unwin, the famous number 131, of course, to Milton Waldman. Of course, yeah. Uh, number 165, and, and there are some others, but I just would recommend that you look there uh, for more information on what Tolkien has said about allegory. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. But there is one other thing we probably need to talk about here, which is that even if it's not allegorical, um, mm. there there is there is a context we need to be aware of, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, real-world context, absolutely. Yeah, because immediately after this rejection of allegory, uh, in favor of apl- applicability, he talks about something else, which I think you've got, right? I do. I do. He says an author, and he says accurately, an author cannot, of course, remain wholly unaffected by his experience, but the ways in which a story germ uses the soil of experience are extremely complex, and attempts to define the process are at best guesses from evidence that is inadequate and ambiguous. It is also false, though naturally attractive, when the lives of an author and critic have overlapped, to suppose that the movements of thought or the events of times common to both were necessarily the most powerful influences. One has indeed personally to come under the shadow of war to feel fully its oppression, but as the years go by, it seems now often forgotten that to be caught in youth by 1914 was no less hideous an experience than to be involved in 1939 and the following years. By 1918, all but one of my close friends were dead. Wow. We can't underestimate the impact of the Great War on his writings. I mean, no, we can't. especially the Lord of the Rings. Um, I know we're going to see a lot more of this as we take a deep dive. Yeah. But we would we would ask you to just try to remember to separate allegory from applicability. Mm-hmm. Um, in doing so, I think we'll appreciate the freedom of the reader that Tolkien wanted us to have, you know, that as opposed yeah. to the purpose domination of the author. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the way I would say that is writers write what they know. 
Yeah, that's of that's the oldest rule of writing. It's just yeah. it's just a reality of writing. And Tolkien knew war. He knew he death. Did. He knew friendship, the loss of friendship. He knew love. Yeah. Um, and of course, his experience of these things is going to influence the yeah. decisions he makes in his storytelling. But Absolutely. that's not the same as saying that this is an allegory of real world events. You, right. Just because his in experience in World War One influenced this, and it does influence it, as we've talked about oh, sure. numerous Deeply. times. Um, you you had a solo episode on it back episode four. We yeah. talked to John Garth about this in season in one. Forty four. Yeah, a few times. Yeah. Um, of course, his experiences influenced this because that's what he knew. That's what he. That's yeah. that all went into the soup. But that doesn't mean that he's writing an allegory of World War One or World exactly. War Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, we'll uh, you know we'll see this a lot more. We'll we'll warn you when to avoid those allegories. Uh, we'll remind you when to take a look at the applicability, and uh, I think we'll see quite a bit of it throughout the next few years. But I think so. We're going to wrap up the forward and move on to the prologue. And Sean, I'm going to have you read that first little paragraph, and we'll chat about that. Okay, so we're picking up at the very beginning of the prologue, part one, concerning hobbits. This book is largely concerned with hobbits, and from its pages, a reader may discover much of their character and a little of their history. Further information will also be found in the selection from the Red Book of Westmarch that has already been published, under the title of The Hobbit. That story was derived from the earlier chapters of the Red Book, composed by Bilbo himself, the first hobbit to become famous in the world at large, and called by him there and back again, since they told of his journey into the East and his return, an adventure which later involved all the hobbits in the great events of that age that are here related. There we go. So we're already getting something on frame narrative, aren't we? Uh, already, he's he's going right into this frame narrative, and this is a this is a phrase we're going to use a few times, especially today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what we're looking at here is um, there, there's an almost hidden frame narrative that underlies the entire legendarium. We yeah. saw some of it in The Hobbit, and it's the idea that The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings were not works of fiction written by J.R.R. Tolkien, but were the memoirs of Bilbo and Frodo and the other hobbits that Tolkien had just rediscovered and translated yeah. from the Red Book. That's right. Now, we we talked about this pretty extensively. We did a, an entire special for our Patreon uh, supporters last season. We highly recommend that. If you're a, a patron, uh, you should go listen to that if you haven't already. And mm -hmm. if you aren't yet, that might be one good reason to go join the Fellowship of the Podcast because you'll get access to these exclusive Patreon specials that we do. Quarterly specials, quarter. yeah. And I yep. think Frame Narrative was our first one, wasn't it? I believe it was, yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah. And and I went back to my notes from that. So for folks who have not heard it, I went back to my notes from that to, to figure out what I wanted to say about it. But there was a yeah. lot more that we said about it then. Well, yeah, it was like uh, an hour long episode. It was an hour long just on that topic. We're going to spend maybe a couple minutes on it. Five here. minutes, right. Um, but so if you're interested in this, you will definitely want to check out that episode. But what's happening here is that Tolkien is sort of inserting himself into the story as a like a fictionalized version of himself. Basically, he's, you know, he's this guy. He's just this guy he's who just, found the Red Book of Westmarch and translated it. Tolus is just it. this guy, you know? Tolus is just this guy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, if this thing was uh, translated by Zaphod Beeblebrox, wouldn't oh that be goodness. interesting? Zaphod <laughs> uh, Beeblebrox. <laughs> well, it'd be very they short. Because <laughs> yeah. it doesn't involve be, him. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They'd all be wanting to pop over to the Golden Perch for Pangalactic Gargle Blaster. There you go. The effects of which are like getting hit in the head with a slice of lemon wrapped around a large yeah. gold. Yeah, and bird. one of the narrator's heads would be arguing with the other head. <laughs> yeah. It'd be like Gollum, except it's the narrator. Exactly. Anyway. Uh, that'd be fun. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so the idea, he's 
He's imagining Sorry. himself as a as a fictionalized Tolkien who found this this work and translated it. Right. It's it's kind of a way of lending credibility to a, a fantastical story, something that mm-hmm. is otherwise going to stretch, you know, pe- people's belief. It's right. really it's a way of creating secondary belief. If you mm-hmm. go back to some of the yeah. some of the principles of, of fairy stories. Right. It's kind of like the best analogy for the modern age I can think of is, you know, those there's found footage horror movies. Oh, I know, golly. Alan, you don't watch a yeah, ton of horror movies. No, I'm but, not a horror film um, guy, but you're but talking like, like Blair Witch Project and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Blair Witch Project and like Cloverfield and some of these. Where, okay. You know, yeah. everything looks like it was shot on a cell phone or a camcorder. And this is supposed to make you as an audience member feel like you're watching something that really happened. Right. A documentary as opposed exactly, to. Exactly. As opposed you know, to a, 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 a dramatized uh, fictional story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Except that this convention has actually been around much longer Oh, yeah. That. Tolkien's channeling a really old literary convention. It was very popular in the 19th century with authors like George MacDonald and Lord Dunsany and Mary Shelley. But it's even older than that. I mean, it was <laughs> not Lord was, Dunsany. I just want to make sure you got that Lord right. Dunsany. <laughs> One not going to make that man, mistake again. That was my Tanny Quettle, man. One that was, time Dunsany. That was your Tanny Quettle. Dunsany. Um, yeah. But it was really popular in the Middle Ages. It can even yeah. be found in ancient literature. So this goes back a long, long oh, yeah. time. Yeah. And the idea of Tolkien as translator or compiler of the story as opposed to, you know, inventing it. Well, that fits right in with something we talked about with Tom Shippey. The idea that Tolkien saw himself as reconstructing ancient stories that were at the root of our mythology and folklore. Mm, Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So we'll come back to this a little later in this episode um, when we get to the finding of the ring and and maybe a couple of other times throughout. Uh, Sure. But we just we just want you to understand what we mean when we talk about this frame narrative. Yeah. So and that's it's definitely an important concept to keep in mind, probably here more than any place else. Though there are some other spots where it kind of we see through, I think, in Rivendell and we we hear a little bit about some of the things that Bilbo's written. Maybe we get the uh, the poem about A. Arendel. Some of that kind of fits right back into that frame narrative concept. So, yeah, we'll we'll see that when we get there. It's I, yeah, I'd say probably here and the appendices is where I remember yeah. it the most. And it's the appendices just, really heavy, yeah, yeah. So and Especially it's, it's the just, language stuff, yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. But uh, again, more on that in that special, and uh, and we just <laughs> and want on the you to appendices know, in five years. <laughs> and on the yeah, right, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, if you hear us talk about the frame narrative, that's what we mean. Exactly. Well, let's go ahead and move on. We're going to talk a little bit about what hobbits are like. So I'm going to read a little bit here. Hobbits are an unobtrusive but very ancient people more numerous formerly than they are today, for they love peace and quiet and good-tilled earth. A well-ordered and well-farmed countryside was their favorite haunt. They do not and did not understand or like machines more complicated than a forge bellows, a water mill, or a hand loom, though they were skillful with tools. Even in ancient days they were, as a rule, shy of the big folk, as they call us, and now they avoid us with dismay and are becoming hard to find. They are quick of hearing and sharp-eyed, and though they are inclined to be fat and do not hurry unnecessarily, they are nonetheless nimble and deft in their movements. They possess from the first the art of disappearing swiftly and silently when large folk whom they do not wish to meet come blundering by. And this art they have developed until to men it may seem magical. But hobbits have never, in fact, studied magic of any kind, and their elusiveness is due solely to a professional skill that heredity and practice, and a close friendship with the earth, have rendered inimitable by bigger and clumsier races. Hmm. Man, I love that. It's, a, it's such a great, such a great paragraph. There's just it really so is. much. It's so much there. Yeah. yeah such economy yeah. of words and yet yeah. just richness of detail. We we get we right away know exactly who these people are. We know that yeah. they're agrarian. 
yeah. that they they only like simple machines but useful machines. Yeah, those um, are all very very purposeful machines tools. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. They're they're very um, very practical machines. Yes. Yeah. Um, we we know that they are skilled with tools. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're shy, that they don't like the big folk. They well, they avoid the big folk. I don't mean they don't like us personally. They just don't right. like, you know, they like to keep away from us. It's nothing personal. It's not right. you, it's me. It's just, I'm trying to hide. <laughs> I'm just trying to hide. Um, <laughs> they have excellent vision and hearing. Yeah. They're agile, despite the fact that they seem slow and fat. Um, <laughs> and they have this this art of disappearing that, yeah. that seems like magic, but it's really just, it just comes from their close friendship with the earth. I love that that last, that last little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. That's uh, it does tell us a lot about hobbits, but it also tells us a little bit about Tolkien himself. I mean, we we've referenced Letter Two Thirteen before, uh, and but you listen to what he says there, and it it really parallels a lot of this. He says of himself, "I am in fact a hobbit in all but size. I like gardens, trees, and unmechanized farmlands. I smoke a pipe, and I like good plain food, unrefrigerated, but detest French cooking." I like, and even dare to wear in these dull days, ornamental waistcoats. I'm fond of mushrooms out of a field, have a very simple sense of humor, which even my appreciative critics find tiresome. I go to bed late and get up late when possible. I do not travel much. <laughs> that, I, I knew there was a reason I liked him. He goes to bed late say, and gets up late when possible. I would get that's along just, with him just fine. That's just, just like fine. Um, yeah, no, and that's that's all true. There, there, uh, There's a lot in Hobbits that is sort yeah. of an idealized version of of Tolkien himself and, and, the, yeah. and the qualities that he valued. Um, and yet I do feel, I do feel like I have to point out, um, you know, lest <laughs> yeah. we forget the lesson of, of Dr. Flieger to remember that Tolkien's letters are sometimes contradictory. And he yes, does say are. elsewhere that there are some qualities about hobbits that he doesn't like so much. Oh yeah. Um, he, he's sometimes irritated and infuriated by certain qualities of hobbits, but I am going to save that for the next episode because next ah. time we're going to see those fellows talking in the ivy bush. And yeah, yeah, I don't know, man, some of those guys need to be taken down a peg. And I think we'll talk yeah. about some of those negative hobbit qualities there. <laughs> I think we will. We've touched on it before, so I don't think it we will have yeah. come as a surprise. Shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who heard our last uh, Tolkien, yeah, reading, Tolkien day reading day. That's right. Well, uh, we won't read the next paragraph, but we learn a little bit about their size, that they are smaller than dwarves, but not much shorter. They are two to four mm-hmm. feet, but typically three to three and a half. And that's, in fact, the height that Tolkien assigned to Bilbo, three and a half, uh, in a letter that he wrote to the American publisher way back in early 1938. That's true. But also there's a, there's a little detail that's very useful at the end of the disaster of the Gladdenfields in the oh, Unfinished yeah. Tales. Yeah. Um, I think it's a footnote, right? isn't it? Yeah. It is, yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's it's just a little bit more kind of refining this this yeah. range a little bit. He says the remarks on the stature of hobbits in the prologue to the Lord of the Rings are unnecessarily vague and complicated, owing to the inclusion of references to survivals of the race in later times. But as far mm. as the Lord of the Rings is concerned, meaning you know at the time of the Lord of the Rings, right. they boil down to this: the hobbits of the Shire were in height between three and four feet, never less, and seldom more. They did not, of course, call themselves halflings. This was the Numenorean name well, for them. Yeah, that's kind of like an insult, <laughs> really. Yeah, I can't imagine that they would call themselves that. Uh, <laughs> it, it evidently referred to their height in comparison with Numenorean men and was mm. approximately accurate when given. It was applied first to the Harfoots and then later also to Phalahides and Stores. And that makes sense because, of course, the Numenoreans were much taller. Very yeah, tall, they, they, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Tolkien also mentions that hobbits seldom now reach three feet, but they have dwindled, they say. Well, in that same bit from Unfinished Tales, Tolkien compares their dwindling to that of the men of the West. He explains that the dwindling of the Dunedain was not a normal tendency, shared by peoples whose proper home was Middle-earth. 
but due to the loss of their ancient land far in the west, nearest of all mortal lands to the undying realm. The much later dwindling of hobbits must be due to a change in their state and way of life. They became a fugitive and secret people, driven, as men, the big folk, became more and more numerous, usurping the more fertile and habitable lands, uh, to refuge in forest or wilderness, a wandering and poor folk, forgetful of their arts, living a precarious life, absorbed in the search for food and fearful of being seen. Boy, so, that's fascinating. Because, sort of you a, know, this, a devolution, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's fascinating because, you know, this this dwindling is something that we see with most of the races of Middle yeah. Earth. You know, we see and the all elves for different fade. reasons. Yep. Right, exactly. That's what I was getting at. It's like they're, yeah. they're all for different reasons. He's not going to just say, oh, well, everybody dwindled. He's going to come up with right. a specific reason why each race dwindled. There's a specific reason why the elves fade. There's a yep. specific reason why the Dunedain dwindle. There's a specific reason why the hobbits dwindle. And That's amazing. And the, and the hobbit one is, you know, it, it's... It's nearly scientific, actually. Yeah, you know, he kind of yeah, gets it really some, is. Some serious hardcore fantasy as, nerdness. Yeah, yeah. As they start kind of having to uh, get away from living in these communities uh, and just kind of living a more subsistence sort of existence, you know, where they're mm-hmm. just having to forage and uh, and live in wilderness. Yeah, they're going to get smaller. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Now, I, I know there's another passage that I know you want me to read, but before yeah. I do, there's at the very end of this paragraph, there's just one thing that I I just want to point out, we won't talk much about it, but there's this mysterious reference to these two famous characters of old who are taller than oh, Vandabrust yes. took. Yes. I, wa- I wonder who those those two guys are. I wonder who they are. <laughs> Perry and Mippin, I believe, is are their names. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Perry. Perry is Perry. just, you know, Perry's just a guy's name. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. And Mippin, though. I think I'm going to name my son Mippin. How's that? <laughs> Mippin. That would be really funny to name if you had twins or something and named them Perry and Mippin. Perry and Mippin. Yeah. One of them would be okay. One of them yeah. would hate you forever. The other would be writing a book about how much they hate their parents. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. All right. <laughs> well, let me move on to this next paragraph. Yeah. Why don't you before we get into <laughs> serious trouble? There's some real yeah. weirdness. As for the hobbits of the Shire, with whom these tales are concerned, In the days of their peace and prosperity, they were a merry folk. They dressed in bright colors, being notably fond of yellow and green. But they seldom wore shoes, since their feet had tough leathery soles, and were clad in a thick curling hair, much like the hair of their heads, which was commonly brown. Thus the only craft little practiced among them was shoemaking, but they had long and skillful fingers, and could make many other useful and comely things. Their faces were, as a rule, good-natured rather than beautiful, broad, bright-eyed, red-cheeked, with mouths apt to laughter, and to eating and drinking. And laugh they did, and eat, and drink, often and heartily, being fond of simple jests at all times, and of six meals a day when they could get them. Hmm. They were hospitable and delighted in parties, and in presents, which they gave away freely and eagerly accepted. You just can't help but like the hobbits of the Shire. You really can't. You really can't. I mean, they're just, they're just good people. Yeah, you know, good-natured just, faces. Yeah, ready to laugh, eat, drink, yeah. tell jokes. Yeah. Really bad jokes, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love this description that they're puns. not they're not really beautiful, but they're good-natured. You know, they, yeah. their faces are good-natured. You know, they're, they're they're friendly. They're approachable. Yeah, these aren't elves where right. the, the beauty is is otherworldly, and you just are, are afraid to it's approach. In, them. It's kind of an intimidating beauty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They don't have that. They're no. They're infinitely approachable. They're they're simple. They're simple people in in the best way, and we'll see next time. Not yeah. not always in, in good ways, but but here we're talking about you know all these these great ways that they're simple. Just you know, 
simple jokes, simple food. Yep. Lots of it. And that's again. <laughs> and parties. Of, that's and parties. Right. Generosity. That's that's such a cool thing. And we'll see more of that too next uh, next episode. Yeah. With the guys in the, the Ivy Bush in that conversation. Yeah, that's right. You know, this thing about crafting, uh, just real quickly, you know, it's it's just interesting. We don't tend to think of them as craftsmen. They're certainly not Noldor or anything like that, but they no. do make they do make things, don't they? Just not shoes. They do. Just not <laughs> shoes. <laughs> that's a very good point. Yeah, that would yeah. be uh that would be a problem. I'm sure the only shoemaker in Hobbiton is, uh, you know, he's still struggling. He's very poor. Yeah. You know, and, and the description really compares well, very parallel to the description of the hobbits in, in The Hobbit. So, uh, mm, you know, yeah. take a look at that for, for another comparison. But mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and compare them to men because that's actually what he does here uh, in the next paragraph. He says, it is plain indeed that in spite of later estrangement, hobbits are relatives of ours far nearer to us than elves or even than dwarves. Of old, they spoke the languages of men after their own fashion and liked and disliked much the same things as men did. But what exactly our relationship is can no longer be discovered. The beginning of hobbits lies far back in the elder days that are now lost and forgotten. Only the elves still preserve any records of that vanished time, and their traditions are concerned almost entirely with their own history. Selfish little guys. I mean, really. <clears throat> Sorry. No, that was just an aside. In which men appear seldom and hobbits are not mentioned at all. Yet it is clear that hobbits had, in fact, lived quietly in Middle-earth for many long years before other folk became even aware of them. And the world being, after all, full of strange creatures beyond count, these little people seemed of very little importance. But in the days of Bilbo and of Frodo his heir, they suddenly became, by no wish of their own, both important and renowned, and troubled the counsels of the wise and the great. Can you just imagine, you just imagine people like suddenly all over Middle Earth saying like, have you heard about hobbits? Oh, these hobbits, they're so big. Everybody's talking about hobbits now. They're trending on Twitter. They're trending. Hashtag hobbits. Hashtag hobbits. And there's all kinds of clickbaity articles like, you know, the smallest race you've never heard of, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) Ten meals that hobbits love. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. On all the different, uh, I can't even think of the names of some of those sites. Oh, I know. These horrible clickbait (laughs) articles that are everywhere. Yeah. A list of 20 things and it takes you 20 pages to get through the list because they want to show you. Because they're they're showing you ads on every single page. Yeah. 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 Terrible. We will never do that on our website, folks. We just want to tell you that. I'm not not. saying there'll never be an ad there. I mean, really, if we get one, we'll put one there, but. We're not going to do saying that. We, I'm not I'm not going to say we'll never have a pointless article there, but we won't oh, do no, that. I'm not, we already have that, those, I'm sure. <laughs> we do. That's true. But we're not going to make you click but, 20 times to read through no. a pointless article. I think that's the point. No, certainly not. <laughs> no. Uh, so the text here implies a direct connection to men, but, mm-hmm. but Tolkien actually makes it even more clear in the uh, often imitated, never duplicated letter 131. Um <laughs> I had in mind, I, I could only hear uh, Robin Williams as, as the genie. The, the, uh, oh, yeah. It, Often imitated, never duplicated, 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 Genie of, of the lamp. lamp. <laughs> we have kids, folks. We do. We Sorry. I know. We're going to get, we're going to get ribbed for another dad joke, but, uh, yeah. you know, sometimes they write themselves. So, yeah. Anyway, Robin Williams in that movie is a legend for anybody who uses their absolutely. voice in any sort of professional capacity. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or even amateur. But, 
capacity. Or even amateur capacity. Um, but anyway, in a footnote to that letter, Tolkien explains that uh, the hobbits are, of course, really meant to be a branch of the specifically human race, mm-hmm. not elves or dwarves. That's right. Hence, the two kinds can dwell together, as at Bree, and are called just the big folk and little folk. Yep. They are simply a branch. They're not mm-hmm. an entirely separate uh, entity like the way the elves are. Right. Um, and he also goes on to touch on their magic power and their stature, which we touched on earlier. Uh, he says in that letter that hobbits are entirely without non-human powers, but are represented as being more in touch with nature, the soil and other living things, plants and animals, and abnormally for humans, free from ambition or greed of wealth. Well, hmm. Except for Lotho, maybe. But uh, <laughs> so back That's to true. Tolkien. There's always one. There's always one. The exception that proves the rule, I guess. That's right. So Tolkien goes on to say that they are made small, little more than half human stature, but dwindling as the years pass, partly to exhibit the pettiness of man, plain, unimaginative, parochial man, hmm. and mostly to show up in creatures of very small physical power, the amazing and unexpected heroism of ordinary men at a pinch. Boy, that speaks volumes. It and does, we'll doesn't see. it? We'll see so much of we that in the next chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, he also included a, a similar comment about this, you know, this sort of two branches business uh, yeah. in letter 319, where he called hobbits a diminutive branch of the human race. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, clearly, it, it's very clear. They are men. They are the, you know, they are part yeah. of this race that is the second born children of Iluvatar. Right. And speaking of which, it's actually kind of interesting to me to see here in the prologue that they are far nearer to us than elves or even than dwarves. I know. Uh, yeah, that was that, a little odd too. Yeah, I mean that that construction kind of implies that dwarves are closer to us than elves are because it says or even than dwarves. Right. But we know from the Silmarillion that's not the case. We know the elves and men are the children of Iluvatar and were from the beginning, um, whereas dwarves were the creations of Aule that were given right. life and, and adopted by Iluvatar. Mm-hmm. So not you know I'm not sure what to make of that uh, unless maybe it's the the limited perspective of you know Tolkien the translator of the frame mm-hmm. narrative speaking here. That could be. Uh, yeah, what do you got? I'm thinking maybe huh, maybe man would think themselves closer to the dwarves just because dwarves are mortal mm. like men and elves are not. Yeah. And so we feel like True. as men, we would think we're closer to dwarves than to elves. Yeah. You know, that might be an angle. Because elves are otherworldly and ethereal and, well, and immortal. And mostly yeah. just the immortal part. And, and immortal. <laughs> yeah. And dwarves are not. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, you know, certainly we are we men in Tolkien's world are uh, <laughs> much we closer are men, to the elves. I think. Yeah. Last we I are checked. men. We are Devo. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. That was. Brilliant. That was how did it take sir. us ninety four episodes to get a Devo reference? To get a Devo reference? reference? Yeah. Wow. Boy, you're not kidding. <laughs> but I, I do I'm love sure we'll that... get another one when uh, when the orcs are, are are cracking the whip. But we'll just oh, leave yes. that there. Yes, that's true. <laughs> yes. Uh I, I love that the evidence given for the kinship is based partly on linguistics. You know, yeah, they spoke the languages yeah. of men after their own fashion. You know, again, yeah, I just I love that. I love the language stuff. Tolkien was a linguist, and I think well, and he includes that so often. I mean, mm-hmm. so often language and identity with a particular group of of people or a, you know a a people group, they're they're so tied together. They're so closely tied together. I can't help but go back to uh, when Thingol banned the speaking of uh, of Quenyan in in oh, his yeah, realm. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's and, right, and how that really kind of isolated those people, the the Noldor yeah. refugees. So, yeah, yeah, it is it is kind of a it is kind of a cultural. That's yeah, um, a big marker, isn't cultural it? Cultural war kind of thing. Yeah, 
yeah, mm. it's yeah. cultural marker, what and yeah, and 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 what yeah. Thingol did shutting was one down is a cultural exactly. War, yeah. yeah, that's what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right about that. Tell us a little bit about their uh, their wandering days. Okay. Their own records began only after the settlement of the Shire, and their most ancient legends hardly looked further back than their wandering days. It is clear, nonetheless, from these legends and from the evidence of their peculiar words and customs, that like many other folk, hobbits had in the distant past moved westward. Their earliest tales seem to glimpse a time when they dwelt in the upper vales of Anduin, between the eaves of Greenwood the Great and the Misty Mountains. Why they later undertook the hard and perilous crossing of the mountains into Eriador is no longer certain. Their own accounts speak of the multiplying of men in the land, and of a shadow that fell on the forest, so that it became darkened, and its new name was Mirkwood. Well, that certainly puts a timestamp on it, doesn't it? It certainly uh, does. So we're looking at Third Age, 1050. 1050. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's when the shadow fell on Mirkwood. Yeah, so mm-hmm. shortly after that, they started to uh, to migrate. Yep, um, yep. So yeah, so they've been and over the, on the other side of the Misty Mountains for a long time now. Yep, and I think the, you know, the reasons for the migration seem... Um, Seem certain enough. I mean, they seem clear enough. Understandable yeah. reasons, you know, the area getting too crowded with the big folk. The shadow yeah. in the forest is probably a, a oh, huge, <laughs> that's a pretty good huge one. You know? Yeah. Why is the forest? The, <laughs> yeah. Why is the forest suddenly dark? Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's uh, hey, I, I can I can relate to this. You know, the neighborhood's yeah. getting too crowded. Crime is on the rise. Property values are plummeting. You know, yeah, I'm going to move. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I like the idea of moving to a land where I can just say, this is my land right here, this one. Mm, I don't yeah. have to buy it. It's just mine. This is my shire. I'm going to build a house here. <laughs> this shire is my shire. Oh, man. This land is your shire. Mm-hmm. From the West Of course, you have to cross very dangerous to mountains River. to get there. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Nicely goodness. done. No, shire I was going to say- was you, made you... for you and me. <laughs> or, for, or for stores and Harfoots. Yeah. Not for us, because we're big folk. Well, yeah, no, that's true. Definitely not. But <laughs> just a song reference, really. But yeah, yeah. I know, so, I know, I know what you're doing. I know, I know what I knew, you're doing. I knew, it's just, yeah, if you didn't, we were going to have to chat. That was that was like really, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I thought for sure you'd you'd, you'd get that. Um, yes, I did. So we're talking a little bit about the breeds themselves. Uh, before the, I'm going to read this next paragraph. Before the crossing of the mountains, the hobbits had already become divided into three somewhat different breeds: Harfoots, Stewars, and Fallowhides. The Harfoots were browner of skin, smaller, and shorter and they were beardless and bootless. Their hands and feet were neat and nimble, and they preferred highlands and hillsides. The stewers were broader, heavier in build. Their feet and hands were larger, and they preferred flatlands and riversides. The fallowhides were fairer of skin and also of hair, and they were taller and slimmer than the others. They were lovers of trees and of woodlands. Well, now we know I'm not a fallowhide. I am definitely not taller and slimmer than <laughs> Tall anybody. Tall and slim. <laughs> fair skin and fair hair. Yeah. yeah none no, of that really no. describes me either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're not going to read the next little bit, but we see that the Harfoots associate with the dwarves. That's the right. The stewers are a little bit less shy of the men, and the fallowhides are friendlier with the elves. That's interesting. So we get this kind of parallel with the different races and which branch of the the uh, the hobbits you know get along with them yeah. best it's interesting yeah that that is very interesting and it's interesting that it's once again we're dealing with a race that's divided into three kindreds is I know what is it with Tolkien <laughs> in these threes huh I know I I mean I I, I kind of wonder if he's he, he's kind of subtly parodying or referencing his own legendarium you know yeah, probably uh, not on parodying his... but yeah I, I, well maybe maybe parody, though, maybe parody in sort of the he's kind of he's turning it into something kind of 
you know, something a little bit more base and yeah. down to earth with Hobbits. Yeah, that's you know? true. Uh, I don't yeah. mean like, a, you know, obviously he's not cruelly parodying his own no, stuff. But, no. Um, but uh, no, I mean, it's, you know, we've got. This is a Weird Al Yankovic song or anything like no, that. No, no, that's it's not true. that kind of parody. No, no. No, but it's it's. I think it's kind of a reference, you know, drawing yeah. on that rich homebrew as, uh, as John. Yeah. Said. <laughs> oh, there you go with your homebrew again, man. <laughs> Always with the homebrew, man. Always um, with the. But homebrew. yeah, we've got the western migration of the elves and of the Adine happening in three groups, and here you got the hobbits moving westward in three groups. But mm-hmm. but I think it's important to note that even if he's parodying or referencing the idea of three kindreds moving westward. He's not really drawing specific parallels to specific kindreds, is he? I no, mean, you no, couldn't really, really say, you couldn't say like, oh, the stores are equivalent to the Noldor or something like that. No, you're right. I mean, in fact, it's it's like there's a mix of things. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the the stores may be less shy of men, but they seem to be more like the the dwarves because they're the ones that are broader and heavier in build. Yeah, and, yeah. But they prefer flatlands and riversides, which is what the Tellery liked, right? Or the not the right. Tellery, but the, the green elves of Assyrian. Yeah, yeah, right. um, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's there's not really a one-to-one comparison with any of the times that he split these three things up. Um, That's true. Whether it's yeah. the Noldor Artillery and, and OMG yeah. Manway. <laughs> <laughs> Vanyar, the Vanyar. Vanyar, Vanyar, sorry. Yeah. Couldn't remember. Drew a total yeah, blank. Yeah, you're, um, you're right. It's like he's he's taking he's taking just characteristics and just sort of yeah. mixing them up, kind of putting them into the blender or into the soup, maybe is into a better the soup, way yeah. to say that. I mean, like the Harfoots, brown, small, nimble. Okay, well, that made me think of the Haladine. Um, mm-hmm. But but they're fond of highlands. So that's like Hador. I mean, uh, yeah, you've true. got the, they're friendly with the dwarves, which is like the Noldor, but they're numerous, like the Tillery. So, you know, there's just, right. th- there's a real yeah. mix. And I, I, I like that because it's clear that he's not just, you know, copying and pasting. Because if he was, it, it, it wouldn't feel as real. No. He no. would clearly be copying himself, yeah. And, and I like the reasons why they're each friendly with those different kinds, right? I mean, not surprisingly, the Harfoots and their friendship with the dwarves, well, and they're the ones that preserve the, the habit of living in tunnels and holes. Big surprise. Mm, that's true. That's uh, true. The, the Phalahides, well, of course they're friendly with the elves. They're better with language and song. That's true. Uh, yeah. You know, than, than in craft. So, of course, they're going to like the elves. So, you know, at least yeah, there's some, some explanation that works. That's a good point. Yeah, you can see similarities with um with races more so yes. than you know specific kindreds of races yeah right right that's really cool yeah that's a good catch well do you have some word nerdery for us on this I, I bet you I, do I do yes I got a little word nerdery on the names okay uh from and this comes from the nomenclature of the Lord of the Rings which Tolkien wrote himself and that so, is a great resource by the way fantastic resource it's in the back of Hammond and Skull's uh, Lord of the Rings a Reader's Companion which mm-hmm. we're referencing fourteen times an episode here today well we're trying to slow that down yeah we don't. <laughs> Not that much, no, but no, a, but a few not times. That much. Yeah. So Harfoot comes from the Old English Harefoot, which means harefoot. Of course. Uh, Stoor, Stores comes from Old English store or store. I've seen it spelled both S-T-O-R and S-T-O-O-R. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just means strong in Old okay. English. And then Fallowhide, well, that's not even Old English. That's just English. No. It's yeah, it Fallowhide, you meaning basically pale skin or yellow skin. Yeah. Not that that's a word people use much anymore. I mean, the only time I've come across that word is like a fallow deer. That's, um, yeah. That, which and that's, is I, kind of a yellowish side. Yeah. And I think that is an example given by Tolkien. I think he even says it's not used frequently except for a fallow deer. So, oh, well, of course he said go. that. Maybe I read that somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> if, it, if it's a linguistic insight, you can probably guess that Tolkien picked up on it for Well, us. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm certain I've never thought of anything he hasn't thought of. <laughs> <laughs> nope. 
All right. Well, let's see. Should I move on to my next passage here? We're yeah, gonna be I talking think so. About, uh, the the we'll founding the of founding. communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. It's a short bit here. There was room and to spare for incomers, and ere long the hobbits began to settle in ordered communities. Most of their earlier settlements had long disappeared and been forgotten in Bilbo's time, but one of the first to become important still endured, though reduced in size. This was at Bree and in the Chetwood that lay round about, some forty miles east of the Shire. It was in these early days, doubtless, that the hobbits learned their letters and began to write after the manner of the Dunedine, who had in their turn long before learned the art from the elves. And in those days also they forgot whatever languages they had used before, and spoke ever after the common speech, the Westron as it was named. Mm-hmm. And there we go with our language bit again. Mm-hmm. Yep, there you go. So so what we're seeing is them uh, settling in, in Dunedine land, uh, mm-hmm. assimilating to the local culture, the Dunedine culture, you know, and, right. and, and we see that culture the, the, of men, yeah. I mean, the loss of their language is a marker for, yeah. you know, adopting this culture. Yeah. That last, degree, that last yeah. line says a lot, doesn't it? They forgot mm-hmm. whatever languages they'd used before that. Yeah. And that once again, though, ties them, I think, right back to men. You know, we talked about their origin as a splinter of men. Uh, yeah. It, it's, it's much easier to forget the language that you've used if mm-hmm. you're going back to a language that's related related to the language that you used yeah yeah even though you you know certainly not that generation but it, it right. you know, that sort of genetic memory if you will there and, and there's and there's a similarity there you could probably course, assume that the languages similar. are structured mm-hmm. similarly um yeah. you know maybe they use similar syntax you know yeah i mean it's it's not like they're moving from you know mandarin chinese to you know portuguese or something i mean it, right yeah it, exactly the language structure the language some of the same verbiage some of the same concepts uh, it's more like maybe Spanish to Portuguese or something. I, I, right. you know, that's a yeah. poor analogy, I'm sure, but you well, get with, the idea. But, but no, but your point is, I think your point's valid. They're, they're likely something in the same language family, yeah. you know, maybe yeah. even the same branch of the same language family. So, yeah. I would imagine so. Yeah. I mean, There's they, enough similarity there. They haven't, they haven't been apart so long that their speech is right. that unrelated. Yeah. Right. Agree. So, so they found the Shire uh, and uh, we get a new calendar uh, at this point, right? So we get the mm, first year yeah. of the Shire Reckoning. And so while we're not going to read about Marco and Blanco, we're going to actually pull up a bit from the Hammond and Skull Reader's Companion uh, on them that is absolutely worth knowing. This is really cool. Uh, <laughs> when I read this, I was like, okay, no, this has to get in the show. They oh, point yeah. out a really fascinating parallel between the names of the brothers who founded the Shire, Marco and Blanco, and the names of the first Anglo-Saxons who arrived in Britain in the early 5th century, according to legend, and conquered the native Britons. Their names, the Germanic chieftains, were Hengist and Horsa. Well, Hengist is Old English for gelding, horse, or steed, while Horsa stems from Old English horse. Well, Marco is derived from Old English, and I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, mare? I think that's right. M-E-A-R-H? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is horse or steed, and Blanca is Old English for white or gray horse. So mm-hmm. That is got, so cool. Two Anglo-Saxons yeah. named, you know, with words, with names that are related to the words for with horse. horse names, yep. And now you've got horse names for Marco and Blanco. Yeah. Founding yeah. the Shire. I love that. It's such a that cool is, under the radar sort of move, isn't it? It, it is. And, and honestly, even the, even the way that the hobbits come to uh, Eriador and sort of settle oh, yeah. in this, the, the remnants of this, uh, this, this fading kingdom Kind of reminds me of the Anglo-Saxons coming to Britain as the oh, remnants absolutely. of the Roman Empire, you know, falling into ruin around them. 
Right. Yeah. Right. It's that's so cool, and I and I love the the, the horse <laughs> detail that, that yeah. Hammond and Skull brought to life. Well, of course you do. Real life Lord of the Mark. <laughs> of course, yeah. The, the Ritter Mark, and you know all your that's uh, true obsession with the uh, the row here. That's true, and 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 Marco is is uh, very similar to my last name. So there you go. Yeah, Marco Marchese, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, a couple of other things that I think are worth pointing out. Uh, I love the fact that they didn't establish a kingdom. You know, they, yeah. they moved into this land and they established a shire, which, as we talked about, is a region or a district of another kingdom. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that speaks volumes about the hobbits, their, their lack of interest in power or dominion yeah. or lack of ambition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 They just they just want they just want land. They don't want a kingdom. They just want a place to live. Land. It's a man's own soul. Sorry. It's, uh, oh, wow, what that was one that? Went, I don't know. What that movie was that? I it don't was, know. Uh, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, Ireland. Uh, they immigrate oh, to the U.S. I remember the yes, I remember. Tell that me one. you like my hat. Um, I, I can't don't think remember. I ever saw that. Don't worry. I don't. don't. Think, I remember it. I I don't remember. I don't. I know. I know. I never saw it, but I remember seeing trailers for it, like in yeah. the nineties or something, wasn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. It's an old one. I mean, you know. yeah. But it's a Tom Cruise movie, which means at some point in the movie he sprints he at runs. full speed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he does. He does that. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> It's like Tolkien resurrecting old English language. Tom yeah. Cruise, he he always runs. runs. Yeah. Um, there, there is one other thing I'd like to point out quickly, sure. if I may, and, it, and that's that you may. this land that they, this realm that they founded, is simply the Shire. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, just like remember yes. we talked about this with the Hobbit. It's not like the, the Hobbit Hill. Shire or right. You know, it's not Halfling like, Shire or something. Yeah. Like that. It's and it's not like you know I don't know they don't have to give it a descriptive name like the Green no. Shire or something like that. It's right. just the Shire, just yeah. like the hill or the water. It doesn't need another name because there's only one. There can it's, be only one. <laughs> I'm sorry, random movie quotes for 500, Alex. <laughs> man, man, yeah. Uh, why is the grass green? Why does the sun rise in the east? <laughs> I cannot uh, imagine any hobbits being um, immortals in that particular Being immortals universe. from the Highlander series? No, no. no. I can't. I can't uh, <laughs> They'd I can't be the first would... ones against the wall. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Probably so. I don't know. They are kind of low, low to the ground. They are, they are. And they, to they're dowdy the at bay. They are dowdy yeah. at bay. That's true. That's true. But yeah, no, I, I yeah, don't, I don't no. see it happening. Um. But yeah, it's you know, there's only one. It's 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 familiar to everybody, so no further information is needed. Right. It's just uh, right. you know, they they live in a small world, and and yeah, as I think we're about to see when we talk about these guardians, that sometimes a problem yes. too. But yeah, that's but, uh, true. Yeah, good stuff. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit of their early history, uh, and I'll try to refrain from making more really bad '80s and '90s movie quotes. How's that for a deal? Fair enough. Thus began the Shire reckoning. For the year of the crossing of the Brandywine, as the hobbits turned the name, became year one of the Shire, and all later dates were reckoned from it. At once the western hobbits fell in love with their new land, and they remained there, and soon passed once more out of the history of men and of elves. While there was still a king, they were in name his subjects, but they were, in fact, ruled by their own chieftains, and meddled not at all with events in the world outside. To the last battle at Fornost with the witch lord of Angmar, they sent some bowmen to the aid of the king or so they maintained, though no tales of men record it. But in that war the North Kingdom ended, and then the hobbits took the land for their own, and they chose from their own chiefs a thane to hold the authority of the king that was gone. There for a thousand years they were little troubled by wars, and they prospered and multiplied after the Dark Plague, Shire Reckoning 37, 
until the disaster of the long winter and the famine that followed it. Many thousands then perished, but the days of dearth, 1158 to 60, were at the time of this tale long past, and the hobbits had again become accustomed to plenty. The land was rich and kindly, and though it had long been deserted when they entered it, it had before been well tilled, and there the king had once had many farms, cornlands, vineyards, and woods. Forty leagues it stretched from the far downs to the Brandywine Bridge, and fifty from the northern moors to the marshes in the south. The hobbits named it the Shire, as the region of the authority of their thane and a district of well-ordered business. And there, in that pleasant corner of the world, they plied their well-ordered business of living, and they heeded less and less the world outside where dark things moved, until they came to think that peace and plenty were the rule in Middle-earth and the right of all sensible folk. They forgot or ignored what little they had ever known of the guardians and of the labors of those that made possible the long peace of the Shire. They were, in fact, sheltered, but they had ceased to remember it. There you go. Yeah. A uh, quick side note real quick before we get into anything else. The Cornlands, I just wanted to make this real clear. I think we talked about it once before, and I don't remember when, but corn here does not mean corn that you and maize. I think of. It does not mean right. maize. It does not mean the yellow stuff that grows on cobs and, you know. Uh, no, we're talking about grain. So right, you know, yeah, could be, uh, yeah, could be any number grain of crops, grains. barley or barley, wheat or yeah. yeah. Uh, I think even I think it might even mean oats in some parts in of, some, uh, yeah. of the world. Yeah, yeah. So just yeah. to just to clear that up. Uh, yep. So you know, I'm I'm not necessarily picturing you know tall corn cobs, you know, uh, corn plants with the cobs. And no, all that. no. That's, I that's I, not... I think we we should we should try not to imagine any new world crop when we're right. That's well, correct. I guess, except for the new world crops that we do associate with hobbits. <laughs> yeah, but we'll be getting Oops. to that soon. A little bit more on that very, soon. Very soon, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What else do we have on this paragraph? I've got oh, a little well, something on the... the next paragraph that we're not yeah. talking, that we're not reading, but let's see. Let's see. Is I there anything really, there, I'm not sure there's a lot to talk about in this section. I mean, I think no. it's fairly self-explanatory. It's just a little bit of a history. I wanted to make sure we touched on that, that, you know, they had the dark plague early on, 37 years after mm -hmm. they settled. Uh, yep. And then for over a thousand years, they, they get to the long winter. And now we're again, you know, quite a bit uh, further into the into the future. And we also get a little bit of a geographical description of the size and kind of shape of the Shire itself. We get the fact that it's uh, 40 leagues east to west. So that's, you know, 120, 125 miles or so uh, from the Downs to the Brandywine Bridge. You know, a, a little bit wider than that if you include the, the Buckland on the east and the West Marches on the uh, on the west. And then it's 50 leagues, so about 150 miles north to south from the northern moors to the uh, marshes. So it's a big, mm -hmm. it's a big land, uh, bigger yeah. than I would have thought, I think, initially. But so, you know, there's not, like I said, there's not a lot to break down here. It's just more descriptive. Details about their life detail. and their land. And yeah. But I did like yeah. th that stuff at the end, the fact that they'd forgotten about the guardians. They didn't realize mm -hmm. they were sheltered. And I love this. And they're not wrong to think this. Peace and plenty are the, ought to be at least the right of all sensible folk. Uh, they're not, of course, uh, as we'll find out as they adventure outside right. of the Shire. Uh, right. But certainly that is what we would think, isn't it? I mean, we, we yeah. would hope we, that... We, uh, we would like to yeah. think it, as you said. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And then while we yeah. won't read the next paragraph, you've got some bits on this, right? You've got some Yeah, interesting... well, this next paragraph gets into the fact that hobbits have never been warlike. Um, right. But, you know, they, they, have, they have fought in wars, not amongst themselves, but they have fought against, you know, orcs and things like that. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of detail about the battle that Bandabras, uh, the bull roarer, Took, had, uh, had taken mm -hmm. part in. Mm -hmm. And remember, this is mentioned briefly in The Hobbit, but it's, it's given as more of just like a personal anecdote, you know, like a, a family, right. 
almost like a family anecdote and a cool origin myth for golf. <laughs> well, yeah, um, there's whereas, that. <laughs> whereas the description here is it's really more of a historical event. You know, we learn yeah. that it's the last battle that hobbits fought in. It's the only one ever within the Shire itself. It's identified with a name and a date, the Battle of Greenfield, Shire Reckoning, yep. 1147. You know, mm -hmm. all of this creates that interconsistency of reality that yeah. um, that's, you know, consistent with what Tolkien has as his aim for fantasy. And I, I think that's really exactly. cool. You, you, by comparing those two, you really see the difference between sort of the Hobbit style and approach mm -hmm. to storytelling tone, versus Lord right. of the Rings. Yeah, I agree. And we also get a, a brief mention of the word Matham, which I'm sure we'll we'll touch on that more oh, yeah. later. But uh, this is the first time that we learn about the Matham House and the uh, and what a Matham is. So that's right. Yeah. Uh, but you are going to read the next paragraph because this tells us even more about the character and nature of hobbits. Okay. Nonetheless, ease and peace had left this people still curiously tough. They were, if it came to it, difficult to daunt or to kill. And they were, perhaps, so unwearyingly fond of good things, not least because they could, when put to it, do without them, and could survive rough handling by grief, foe, or weather, in a way that astonished those who did not know them well, and looked no further than their bellies and their well-fed faces. Though slow to quarrel, and for sport killing nothing that lived, they were doughty at bay, and at need could still handle arms. They shot well with the bow, for they were keen-eyed and sure at the mark, not only with bows and arrows. If any hobbit stooped for a stone, it was well to get quickly under cover, as all trespassing beasts knew very well. <laughs> I love Kinda that. Kind of love that. Yeah. No get doubt. a little bit of that, the, the high dexterity that mm -hmm. hobbits have. Dex plus one. Yep. Yeah. And, and really, their constitution is, is higher than you think. I mean- uh, That's true. Yeah. They really mm -hmm. are. They're dowdy. They're tough to kill. They, they endure grief, foe, and weather. I mean, this is, they're, they're telling us that these guys are tougher than they look. Yeah, uh, and and I think we'll see that, of course, at great length with Mary and Pippin and with Sam and Frodo uh, throughout the entire story. Yeah, but yeah, and again, just a little bit of their ethics: slow to quarrel and and not killing anything that lived for sport. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, that's not they're not saying they wouldn't kill anything for food. Just <laughs> no, they certainly do. Yeah, <laughs> they do. They most assuredly do. I mean, yeah. um, we know Bilbo likes his bacon, right? Uh, and was it the Thalahides who who hunt? Or was it the Harpers? Yes, that's hunt? right. The Fallowhides hunted. They preferred, yeah, it was the Fallowhides. They preferred hunting to tilling. Absolutely. Yeah. We get a little bit more on, on their dwellings, right? We get to learn about the fact that they live in holes in the ground mm -hmm. or that they had all lived in holes in the ground originally and they still feel at home in those. Interestingly, we get this, uh, this detail that only the poorest and richest do that. Uh, the poorest, of course, yeah. are just, they're just, they are ugly holes with nothing that, to sit down that's on. That's all they can afford. It's just right. a, it's a literal it's hole. It's a bare, sandy hole with nothing mm -hmm. to sit down on, right? Uh, and on the other hand, you know, the, the rich create these, you know, fantastic, uh, you know, massive dwellings. Very elaborate dwellings, which we yeah. saw with Bilbo's. The smiles. Yeah. yeah, even Bilbo's. I mean, mm -hmm. that may not be like great smiles, but it is a fantastic home with you know, pantry, multiple pantries, multiple dining rooms, multiple kitchens, right. multiple right. wardrobes. I mean, <laughs> the right. guy's got quite a property. I'd love to see the listing for that on, on Redfin or something. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and we learn that, that where they might have learned this skill. So I'm going to go ahead and read that paragraph. It is probable that the craft of building, as many other crafts beside, was derived from the Dunedain. But the hobbits may have learned it direct from the elves, the teachers of men in their youth. For the elves of the high kindred had not yet forsaken Middle-earth, and they dwelt still at that time at the Grey Havens, away to the west, and in other places within reach of the Shire. 
three elf towers of immemorial age were still to be seen on the tower hills beyond the western marches. They shone far off in the moonlight. The tallest was furthest away, standing alone upon a green mound. The hobbits of the west farthing said that one could see the sea from the top of that tower, but no hobbit had ever been known to climb it. Indeed, few hobbits had ever seen or sailed upon the sea, and fewer still had ever returned to report it. Most hobbits regarded even rivers and small boats with deep misgivings, and not many of them could swim. And as the days of the Shire lengthened, they spoke less and less with the elves, and grew afraid of them, and distrustful of those that had dealings with them. And the sea became a word of fear among them, and a token of death, and they turned their faces away from the hills in the west. Boy, and that's sad, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It really is. I mean, it, it is certainly the the way of uh, of most races in Middle Earth, yeah. you know, becoming yeah, more is. insular and um, mm-hmm. isolationist, I guess is the word. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, uh, becoming, you know, kind of becoming afraid of the sea. Yeah. And, um, and, and fearful of the And afraid the even West. of the elves. I mean, we see that and with both the, elves, the, yeah. the, you know, Boromir and with the Rohirrim, yeah. you know, all yeah. speak. All uh, the distrust of Galadriel yeah, and Lothlorien. Absolutely. And yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's sad because, of course, the sea should be a thing of hope, right? I mean, that, that's. Yeah, that's the, true. The, because that's where the, the, the music, music of Iluvatar is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And yet it's a word of fear and a token of death for them. Mm-hmm. They that's really true. don't like that the water. Is, <laughs> that's true. No, they do not. We'll see a little bit of that in the in the first chapter. Yeah, we will. Um, that's true. I, I love this little nod to the Beowulf essay. You, you oh, noticed yeah. that about the, the tower? The, the tallest tower. The top of the tower. Yeah. I love that. I know. That was my yeah. first thought when I read it was, oh, yeah, it's, it's like, that tower. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I know that tower. <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm not sure that it means anything, but I think it, it's just a, it's a neat nod to something else that he wrote. I'm sure yeah. there, it's a nod to that. I mean, you realize when he wrote this was was well after he'd written that essay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So of course that was something that you know he still had in his mind, and and I'm sure when he started talking about started thinking about towers and, and near the sea, that was his first thought. Definitely. But, yeah. You know, he, he didn't go too far. He didn't talk about how it was built from old stone or anything like that. No, nothing like that. That would have been too on the nose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we get a little bit more detail on their architecture. Uh, you know, what the houses look like and things like that. It's interesting stuff, but, you know, we can't spend, sadly, we can't spend, uh, you know, time on every single detail. Uh, as it is, as we're, as we, we're giving as much as we'd like to. The full Prancing Pony podcast treatment, and it's going to be a very long episode anyway. But um, it is, yeah. Uh, I'm going to have you pick up the last little paragraph here on the genealogy. I think that's important. Okay. All hobbits were, in any case, clannish and reckoned up their relationships with great care. They drew long and elaborate family trees with innumerable branches. In dealing with hobbits, it is important to remember who is related to whom, and in what degree. It would be impossible in this book to set out a family tree that included even the more important members of the more important families at the time which these tales tell of. The genealogical trees at the end of the Red Book of Westmarch are a small book in themselves, and all but hobbits would find them exceedingly dull. Hobbits delighted in such things, if they were accurate. They like to have books filled with things that they already knew, set out fair and square with no contradictions. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that is so, that's so great. It's so parochial, you know, yeah. this is their, their echo chamber, really. <laughs> that's I mean, so true. Yeah. Isn't it? That's so true. And and I, I almost feel like, I, I even wonder if their interest in genealogy is, um, is somewhat tribalistic, you know, in oh, its yeah, way. Is yeah. it, you know, it's, it's not just, uh, family oriented. It's, it's kind of like, Hey, these are my people. And yeah. we'll see so much of that in the first chapter of how, 
um, how much distrust there is of people from, you know, just the next family yeah. right down the even, road. That's right. Even of other hobbits. Absolutely. Yeah. So there, there really is a strong sense of tribalism with the hobbits and, uh, yeah. And yeah, this this echo chamber of of stories, they, <laughs> stories they already know. I want to. It's got to be something I already know. I don't want to have to read something new. Yeah, yeah. And and there better not be any contradictions. Don't make me learn anything new. Don't challenge my assumptions. <laughs> well, now we're going to go ahead and move on to uh, section two here, the prologue concerning pipeweed. There's there's some you know it's an interesting section, but we're not going to spend a mm-hmm. ton of time on it. I'm just going to go ahead and read the first couple of paragraphs, and then we'll discuss. There is another astonishing thing about hobbits of old that must be mentioned, an astonishing habit. They imbibed or inhaled, through pipes of clay or wood, the smoke of the burning leaves of an herb, which they called pipeweed or leaf, a variety probably of nicotiana. A great deal of mystery surrounds the origin of this peculiar custom, or art, as the hobbits preferred to call it. All that could be discovered about it in antiquity was put together by Marriottic Brandybuck, later master of Buckland. And since he and the tobacco of the South Farthing play a part in the history that follows, his remarks in the introduction to his herb lore of the Shire may be quoted. This, he says, is the one art that we can certainly claim to be our own invention. When hobbits first began to smoke is not known, all the legends and family histories take it for granted. For ages folk in the Shire smoked various herbs, some fouler, some sweeter. But all accounts agree that Tobold Hornblower of Longbottom and the South Farthing first grew the true pipeweed in his gardens in the days of Isengrim II, about the year 1070 of Shire Reckoning. The best homegrown still comes from that district, especially the varieties now known as Longbottom Leaf, Old Toby, and Southern Star. There you go. And it's the first time we Mary. actually see one of our hobbits in That's the text. Right. And it's yeah. not Frodo, it's Mary. Mary. First dialogue um, by any of the hobbits. Or- yeah. Yeah. Quote unquote dialogue. Well, really. yeah, monologue, really. But yeah, true. Um, <laughs> quoted, <laughs> quoted, uh, quoted writing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we, we get a real clarity again about what pipeweed is. I know we've had mm-hmm. this discussion before. It is really tobacco. Mm-hmm. And Tolkien actually, you know, as much as we've yeah. talked about how he doesn't use the, the new world terms in Lord of the Rings, he does use it here. Yes. Uh, while he's, you know, in the prologue when he's talking about, he calls it tobacco here. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and we get, you know, the, we get that this is uh, something that they've been doing, well, going all the way back to 1070. So it's, uh, it's an old an And old hobbits thing. themselves came up with it on their own. It's not something that they learned from the Dunedain or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're the first ones to have figured out how to do it. Now, we'll learn as we're not going to read the rest of it, but we will learn that it didn't start in the Shire. Uh, it mm-hmm. started in Bree. That's right. So, at, at an old inn called? The Prancing, the Prancing Pony. Pony. That's right. What a nice name. What a nice catchy name. What a, that is a catchy name. I like that. The, yeah. the Prancing Pony. I like that. We'll have to I, remember that. You know, though, if you're going to name a podcast, maybe you shouldn't use so many plosives. That's kind of what my first thought is. Maybe we Probably not so many plosives. <laughs> um, colonists. I love that phrase. I know we're not going to read that bit, but the fact that the, <laughs> the, the idea folks that the Shire Brie, folks are colonists. Yeah. It made me think, you know, like, okay, those guys are, are you know, maybe like the, uh, the English and, and, was, you know, the Shires yeah. or the Shires America. That's, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking of. My English brother-in-law calls me colonist sometimes. Does he really? Purely, purely in jest. Yeah. Well, of course, of course. Yeah. Oh goodness. That is hilarious. It is interesting that the, the plant itself actually might've come from Numenor. 
isn't it? Isn't that interesting? I mean, yeah, sure. They're the ones, the hobbits, who first figured out that you can shove this in a pipe and, and smoke it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> I suppose that's a value. But... Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, this actually comes quite possibly from Numenor, uh, yeah. brought over the sea by the men of Western S. Uh, that it is found more often and, and, you know, all over the place in Gondor, whereas in the Shire, it has to be grown in in, in special areas, mm-hmm. uh, you know, areas where the, the climate is correct and the ground is correct. But in Gondor, it's all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's interesting. But they, of it's course, only value it for the fragrance and the, the medicinal value. So, right. Right. Good stuff. I, I like the fact that it may have come from Numenor. The, because I love it, that. It kind of yeah. gives it sort of another worldly quality. I mean, it okay, does, it's not yeah. Valinor. But, you know, it did, no. it does come from far away. It comes from a, a far away, a somewhat enchanted place. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, somewhat enchanted place. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Partially enchanted. Well, you know, it, it's not really an enchanted place. It's just partially enchanted, not... isn't it? I can sort of see a Monty it's Python skit going enchanted. on there. It's mostly enchanted. mostly enchanted. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, the, the side reference to Gandalf without the name, talking about how, you know, Mary says that. Uh, oh, that wizard. He took, took up the, the art long, long ago. ago. And became yeah. skillful. Yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> what, what does it take to be skillful at smoking a pipe? I wonder. I, I don't know. Well, I think it's probably the blowing of the smoke rings that probably, is, is maybe what yeah. Mary's talking about here. Because you're probably. right. I mean, <laughs> you know, tear it up a little yeah. bit, shove it in a bowl. Right. I mean. Get, get, get a match and, and yeah. you know, and try not to burn your hand. I don't know. <laughs> I don't what, think it's exactly wizard level science. It's not yeah. rocket science, you know. Right. It's not firework science. This isn't even a cantrip. I mean, you know, let alone like <laughs> right. a serious high-level spell. Although it could be a can. Maybe there's like a summon pipe weed cantrip. Summon pipe or spell. Oh, man. Anyway. Summon pipe would probably be handier sometimes. Yeah, it would, yeah. Oh, uh, goodness. All right, well, let's uh, let's move on from that. On I, I, I told section. you we weren't going to spend. We did spend some time talking about pipe weed in the last episode uh, just because we had that interesting bit about the, the party in the Netherlands that Tolkien went to. That's right, yeah. Uh, Sean, why don't you go ahead and read off the, uh, the first little bit here about the ordering of the Shire. Okay. The Shire was divided into four quarters, the farthings already referred to, north, south, east, and west. Well, there you go. See, we've already, we've already, we, the, 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 the philology fair. We've already talked right about up. some of the stuff. Yeah, exactly. The Shire, four the quarters, the farthings. Yeah, good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these again, each into a number of folklands, which still bore the names of some of the old leading families. Although by the time of this history, these names were no longer found only in their proper folklands. Nearly all Tooks still lived in the Tookland, but that was not true of many other families, such as the Bagginses or the Boffins. Outside the Farthings were the East and West Marches, the Buckland, and the West March, added to the Shire in SR 1452. Mm. The Shire at this time had hardly any government. Families, for the most part, managed their own affairs. Growing food and eating it occupied most of their time. In other matters, they were, as a rule, generous and not greedy, but contented and moderate, so that estates, farms, workshops, and small trades tended to remain unchanged for generations. Mm. There could be a lot there. And, and I think at some point we'll probably do a discussion, whether it's um, a special topic for a Patreon episode or whether mm-hmm. it's uh, something we do as a, a mailbag question. But this whole idea of a uh, of limited government, hardly and, any uh, government in the Shire. Yeah, yeah. And, and they just Tolkien's don't need it. Words. You know, they don't no. need it. Families manage their own affairs, and uh, yeah, and maybe it's just something about the Hobbit attitude where they they yeah. generally get along, and there's not really the need for 
a whole lot. Well, of, and they uh, obey the they obey the and law. They obey the I rules. Think, yeah, right. Yeah. The rules because they're just. And mm-hmm. uh, I think I don't know if we read that here. Oh, yeah, we do. We read that in just a couple paragraphs here. Um, yeah, yeah. You know about that they followed them because they were the rules, as they said, both ancient and just. We yeah. just do it because it's the right thing to do. Yep. I, I should point out just uh, the marches. They talk about the east and west marches. Ah, yes. Um, yes. A march is another yeah. word for a borderland or a frontier mm-hmm. territory. It's the yeah. same word as mark, as in uh, the Ritter Mark of Rohan. The, you know, or the, the real of the life mark. Lord of the Mark. Yeah. Or the real life. <laughs> as I never get tired of saying, it is the origin <laughs> of my last name. So thank you, sir, for teeing that up for me. I'd be happy to, sir. <laughs> happy to. Oh, goodness. Uh, but yeah, I think at some point, you know, maybe somebody will, will throw a question about, uh, you know, the, the, the often the misquoted of, yeah. or, or oh, yes. lack of context quotation about Tolkien saying that, that his letter. tendencies yeah. lean towards anarchy, you know, and, right. and how this is referenced here in terms of just a minimal government. But yeah, that's way too much. I mean, we could spend an hour talking about that. Yeah, that yeah we certainly could. Not right now. No. Um, we do get the tradition of the High King. Uh, and and living up at Fornos, supposedly, but you know he's not there anymore. Nope. <laughs> there hadn't been a king for a thousand years, uh, but but they do still have phrases in their language that kind of relate to that. You know, they talk about uh, trolls or other evil creatures that they hadn't heard of the king because that's that's right. That's yeah. their way of saying that they're lawless. That they're lawless. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Or anarchic, as the case may be, mm-hmm. uh, in the bad yep. way. <laughs> right, anarchic in the uh, broken windows way. Yeah, yeah, not not in the uh, uh, not in the the way Tolkien was referring to in that. Right, way. but there yeah. we go again, going back to there that we letter. go, and I and I'm not going to go there. No, um, we we aren't going to read the bit about the Thane. I just you know want to point out that he was uh, really had the kind of the powerful position. I mean, I know we talk about the mayor, but the Thane really had a little more power. He was the master of the Shire Moot, captain of the Shire Muster, and the Hobbitry in Arms. Uh, so he really was. The one in charge of the military, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, but of course they didn't. They didn't happen anymore. So it was just a, you know, just a title. It's the closest thing to royalty that exists in oh, the Shire, really. Without you know, a doubt, it really is. It, it's a hereditary office. It is uh, yep. much like you know the much like the the royalty in in the UK today. It's you know it's largely ceremonial. Um, sure. So uh, but there's still yeah. significance to it. Yeah, but still significance to it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But anyway, you absolutely. were about to say something. Well, yeah, I was about to say, uh, I was about to tell you what Hammond and Skull talked about, about the, uh, the word Thane, a little mm, word yeah. nerdery of my own. Okay. Uh, Thane was obviously inspired by English Thane, T-H-A-N-E. The Oxford English Dictionary tells us that that's one who in Anglo-Saxon times held lands of the king or other superior by military service. Mm-hmm. Now, Hammond and Skull also point out that in the original draft of the prologue, which you can actually find in the Peoples of Middle-earth if you have it. Uh, that the original title, I love this, given to the head of the Tuke family was not the Thane, but was the Shirking. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's right. I have read this. Oh, man. But it, and, I'm, and here the I'm going to quote from Peoples. It was no longer in use in Bilbo's time. This is Tolkien's own words. I love this. No longer in use. It had been killed by the endless and inevitable jokes that had been made about it in defiance of its obvious etymology, which, of course, is Shire King. Like Shire Reeve right, is sheriff, right. so Shire King is shirking. That's right. a hilarious pun. That is so then, hilarious. It is great. I frankly wish he left it in, but it's I, brilliant. <laughs> Tolkien is such a great punster. I know that is so great. Oh man, that's awesome. I've been killed by the endless and inevitable jokes. Like, we're done. We're not. We're not calling. <laughs> we're him not the calling anymore. ourselves the shirking anymore. Whose idea was that? That was terrible. I don't know. I don't know. Go oh. ask somebody else. I'm. I'm. Yeah. I'm gonna. 
Sure. I'm, I'm going to sure my work on that. Somebody else do it. Uh, somebody else can kids. answer that for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's so brilliant, though. Oh, that's it great is. stuff. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit about <laughs> what very little government they do have here. Very good. The only real official in the Shire at this date was the mayor of Mickledelving, or of the Shire, who was elected every seven years at the free fair on the White Downs at the Lithe, that is, at Midsummer. As mayor, almost his only duty was to preside at banquets, given on the Shire holidays, which occurred at frequent intervals. But the offices of postmaster and first sheriff were attached to the mayoralty, so that he managed both the messenger service and the watch. These were the only Shire services, and the messengers were the most numerous and much the busier of the two. By no means all hobbits were lettered, but those who were wrote constantly to all their friends, and a selection of their relations, who lived further off than an afternoon's walk. The sheriffs was the name that the hobbits gave to their police, or the nearest equivalent that they possessed. They had, of course, no uniforms, such things being quite unknown, only a feather in their caps, and they were in practice rather haywards than policemen, more concerned with the strayings of beasts than of people. There were in all the shire only twelve of them, three in each farthing for inside work. A rather larger body, varying at need, was employed to beat the bounds, and to see that outsiders of any kind, great or small, did not make themselves a nuisance. That's very, that's very interesting. You know, we see that? that there's, there is so little government there because as we've discussed, so little is needed. And yeah. I think it's really interesting that he really tries hard to downplay the role of the, the government officials that are there. Yeah. The police, you know, talk, the, the sheriffs. Yeah, yeah. Talking about the sheriffs is that, you know, they're rather haywards, you know, basically yeah. a hedge warden, somebody who's basically responsible for making sure livestock don't, you know, graze, graze on private <laughs> exactly, land. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Um, more, you know, more like that than policemen. You know, they're more constrained. And so few of the strings them, three of in each farthest. Yeah. I mean, these yeah, are exactly. huge territories. Yeah. And there's only three and their cars are really slow. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm they seriously, I mean, how do they yeah. get, I mean, if, if the, the North farthing, let's say, if it, if it really is half the height of the, of the Shire, you're talking about it being like 75 miles from the yeah, border to the center of the Shire. That's and true. there's only three sheriffs to cover yeah. that land. They're they're really not responding to any urgent distress no, calls. No. They're, yeah, this is <laughs> unit three. Unit, unit three. We're having a call about a loud a loud party in Bywater. Over. <laughs> I'll get to it in a week. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing like that. No. He's really. It's really just showing how much the hobbits really don't need a police exactly. force. Exactly. How much they don't need what we, what we imagine. What we take we for granted. Really. What, you yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah, there's going to be very, very few. I mean, what do they have a cold case about somebody who, you know, opened up their, their pantry and was missing a pickle? I mean, what, you know, there's not, there's just not going to be very many cases. <laughs> yeah. Um, so somebody's, somebody's magic cufflinks might have been stolen. Maybe, maybe, maybe they just disappeared. Maybe, uh, maybe they're, maybe he put them down in the ring. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway. Oh, uh, goodness. But the, you- um, but we do get this really foreboding comment about yes. how the founders are starting to get uh, a little bit of increased yeah. activity, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're um, not going to read that portion, but you're right. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that there's, there's more activity, there's strange persons, mm-hmm. uh, and nobody's really heeding the sign. Even, even Bilbo uh, didn't really know what it, what it portended as the text. Right. Says. So yeah. very interesting stuff. 
Uh, but on that note, we're going to move straight on to the finding of the ring. Otherwise, we're going to spend four episodes on the prologue. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, the rate we're going. So, uh, Sean, I'm well, going to have you read Fortunately, uh, we spent uh, many episodes on the finding of the ring. So, um, yeah, three, three episodes recap. specifically. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. So, so I'm going to have you read just the recap. first half paragraph. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, so just read a little bit from the top and, and we'll, we'll start discussing briefly, very briefly. <laughs> very briefly. As is told in The Hobbit, there came one day to Bilbo's door, the great wizard Gandalf the Grey, and thirteen dwarves with him. None other indeed than Thorin Oakenshield, descendant of kings, and his twelve companions in exile. With them he set out, to his own lasting astonishment, on a morning of April, <laughs> it being then the year 1341 Shire Reckoning on a quest of great treasure. The dwarf hordes of the kings under the mountain, beneath Erebor and Dale, far off in the east. The quest was successful, and the dragon that guarded the horde was destroyed. Yet, though before all was won, the battle of five armies was fought, and Thorin was slain, and many deeds of renown were done. Yeah, right. (laughs) Spoilers for the book this is the sequel to. The entire book, yes, that's true. (laughs) Yet, though before all was won, the battle of five armies was fought, and Thorin was slain, and many deeds of renown were done. The matter would scarcely have concerned later history, or earned more than a note in the long annals of the Third Age. But for an accident, by the way. There you go. I love his use of quotes around the word accident. Mm. <laughs> I mean, like we've talked yeah. about all along, it really, that's the, that's the, uh, the implication that really, yeah. of course, this was... It was no mere chance, yeah. yeah. This was no boating accident. Oh, wait, wrong, <laughs> wrong movie. I said I was going to stop quoting movies. <laughs> Yeah, and I didn't did. stop quoting movies. You didn't. Yeah, you went a little further this back was... to the 70s with that one. So well, that's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> hey, I, you know, Devo, that was 79, so we're already there. But um, Okay, well, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the hand of Iluvatar, like we talked mm-hmm. about throughout The Hobbit. Uh, this yeah. was not an accident. Uh, he even says course, at the end of that paragraph, it seemed then like mere yes. luck. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> that's true. Now, I have to say one thing. I mean, I, I know for us, this is all old hat. I mean, we've, you know, we, we spent over a season on this. Uh, so we all, we all know the details here. But keep in mind that anybody who had read The Hobbit prior to its revision in 1951, that's where Tolkien redid chapter mm-hmm. five, mm-hmm. would have found the rest of this section quite surprising. So, you know, a kid yeah. who got a copy of The Hobbit in 1945. Yeah. And that's the last version you bought. And that's the one you've been reading. Yeah. Suddenly you pick yeah, this up and. and- and 12 yeah. years later, you pick up the Lord of the Rings and what? So yeah. we get a recap. Because, yeah, because what he's about to talk about here is all the stuff that happened, but in the revised edition, not exactly. the first edition. So we get the recap of, you know, the, the encounter with Gollum and the riddle game mm-hmm. with multiple yep. references to luck along the way, by, by yes. the way, which you don't need us to explain if you listen to season two. Yeah. We get uh, this this great recognition that Bilbo might not have strictly followed the rules, but since Gollum yeah. accepted, well, there you go. It's it's, yep, it's the you're, it's, you're in now. It's the conditions of this game now. Um, yep. I, I, I even love, love the, the authorities. By the I, way, I love the fact, yeah, that the idea that there might be actual authorities who, you know, referee riddle, riddle game. games and study past riddle games for for <laughs> you know rule application. Oh goodness! And then we get you know the 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 story of his escape, the real story of his escape, right? Yeah, not the made-up story that he told to the doors when he first got out. Right. Um, and I love how the way, you know, kind of Tolkien takes this and, um, you know, kind of uses the, the way, the in-universe way that he explains yes. all of this. Um, starting with oh, yeah, a reminder yeah. that Bilbo was lying when he told the dwarves mm-hmm. this. So not only does that explain 
the different version of the story, but it also shows us that the ring was already on at work on his exactly. mind, exactly, making him exactly. want to justify how he acquired it. Mm-hmm. But then he's got this really this awesome little thing about why there are some copies of the story out there mm-hmm. that still have the old story in them. Yeah, Isn't in fact, cool? I'm going to read. Yeah, I'm going to read a little bit of that. It's uh, okay. kind of the middle of this paragraph here. This account, the the false version, Bilbo set down in his memoirs, and he seems never to have altered it himself, not even after the Council of Elrond. Evidently, it still appeared in the original Red Book. Read that as first edition, first impressions of The Hobbit, (laughs) or first edition, period, all impressions, uh, as it did in several of the copies and abstracts. But many copies, second edition on, contain the true account as an alternative, derived no doubt from notes by Frodo or Samwise, both of whom learned the truth, though they seem to have been unwilling to delete anything actually written by the old Hobbit himself. Gandalf, however, disbelieved Bilbo's first story as soon as he heard it, and he continued to be very curious about the ring. Eventually, he got the true tale out of Bilbo after much questioning, which for a while strained their friendship, but the wizard seemed to think the truth important. Though he did not say so to Bilbo, he also thought it important and disturbing to find that the good hobbit had not told the truth from the first, quite contrary to his habit. The idea of a present was not mere hobbit-like invention all the same. It was suggested to Bilbo, as he confessed, by Gollum's talk that he overheard, for Gollum did, in fact, call the ring his birthday present many times. That also Gandalf thought strange and suspicious, but he did not discover the truth in this point for many more years, as will be seen in this book. Yeah. Wow. Gandalf the skeptic. I like it. Yeah. He knows. He knows something's up. Yeah, he really does. And that's great. And I just, I love this, this idea about, you know, the first edition copies of The Hobbit out there. He's, there's that frame narrative creeping in yep, again, exactly. but, but really what he's doing, he's kind of, kind of popping the frame narrative out of the pages of the book and saying, Hey, yep. you're in this world, you know, you are in this world. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a first edition copy, you've got one of those copies, one of those early extracts that has the old version of the story. Bilbo's lie. Yeah. Bilbo's lie in it. It's, it's, it's so great. I love it. Um, Yeah, so then go ahead and just wrap up that section for us of the Finding of the Ring. There's some great little details in the end. All right. His sword Sting, Bilbo hung over his fireplace, and his coat of marvelous mail, the gift of the dwarves from the Dragon Horde, he lent to a museum, to the Mickledelving Matham House, in fact. But he kept in a drawer at Bag End the old cloak and hood that he had worn on his travels, and the ring, secured by a fine chain, remained in his pocket. Hmm. He returned to his home at Bag End on June the 22nd in his 52nd year, SR 1342. And nothing very notable occurred in the Shire until Mr. Baggins began the preparations for the celebration of his 111th birthday, SR 1401. At this point, this history begins. Yes, it does. Isn't Sting that cool? Hanging over the fireplace, Gordon Sumner getting just a little As, as we walk in fields nose. of gold. Yeah. As we walk in fields of gold. You know what I picked up this time that I did not pick up in reading it? The little bit of alliteration that we got. His coat of marvelous mail, the gift mm, of the dwarves yeah. from the dragon horde. He lent to a museum, to the Mickledelving Matham House. Yeah. I love that. Marvelous mail, yeah. museum, Mickled Matham, dwarves, dragon horde. I love it. Yeah, some of that Subtle. hidden music that you only get when you read this stuff aloud. Yeah, it's when great. you read it out loud. So always read it out loud, folks. It makes it so much better. Yeah. <laughs> Now, um, when we get into the note on the Shire Records, which will be our last, uh, our last section today, uh, just a reminder that this was actually only added to the prologue in the second edition. So in 1965, when he rewrote the foreword, that's also when this note on the Shire Records was included. 
So um, that's just, you know, a little bit. It's helpful yeah. to know. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, from the start. I'm just going to read just a couple of paragraphs here, not even a full two paragraphs. At the end of the Third Age, the part played by the hobbits in the great events that led to the inclusion of the Shire in the reunited kingdom awakened among them a more widespread interest in their own history. And many of their traditions, up to that time still mainly oral, were collected and written down. The greater families were also concerned with events in the kingdom at large, and many of their members studied its ancient histories and legends. By the end of the first century of the Fourth Age, there were already to be found in the Shire several libraries that contained many historical books and records. Mm, I am reading your historical documents. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Mathazar. So good to have you back on the podcast again. Always good to have him on. The largest of these collections were probably at Undertowers, at Great Smiles, and at Brandy Hall. This account of the end of the Third Age is drawn mainly from the Red Book of Westmarch. That most important source for the history of the War of the Ring was so-called because it was long preserved at Undertowers, the home of the Fairbairns, wardens of the Westmarch. It was, in origin, Bilbo's private diary, which he took with him to Rivendell. Frodo brought it back to the Shire, together with many loose leaves of notes, and during Shire Reckoning 1420-1421, he nearly filled its pages with his account of the war. But annexed to it and preserved with it, probably in a single red case, were the three large volumes bound in red leather that Bilbo gave to him as a parting gift. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. More frame narrative. You mm-hmm. know, talking about this stuff as yep. though, you know, this this actual book it's, actually Exactly, as it's a historical mm-hmm. document, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, we get the increased interest in history. I love that. You know, we talked about how uh, it, it, it was kind of revealing about Hobbit nature, that all they wanted were genealogies and things they already knew. Things they already knew, uh, yeah. Right, with, with no, with no uh, you know, argument, no, <laughs> no, no contradictions, <laughs> no I contradictions. believe, is the phrase. Yeah, yeah. And, and yet here we go. Now we're getting ancient histories and legends. Mm-hmm. Uh, many historical books and records just in the period of, of, of a century or so. Really yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, the, once they sort of emerged uh, into the larger world, it seems they, they took yeah. an interest in it. And I think that's really cool. Well, yeah. And it started, of course, with those with those four. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, really, absolutely. in terms of the libraries, Mary and Pippin almost exclusively. But Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, though the Red Book would have eventually been uh, Sam and then Eleanor's. So. Right. More on that later. More on that the later. Appendices many years <laughs> exactly. from now. Exactly. Many years. I feel so old, Sean. We're going to be so old when this is done. We are going to be very old when this is done. Yeah. Oh, that's man. Right. That's yeah. right. Did you we have any there. idea? Because I didn't. <laughs> no, I had I had no idea. I kind of thought, eh, we'll do this thing. We'll talk about yeah, the Silmarillion. We'll, Maybe we'll get to Baron and Luthien and then we'll just, eh. We'll call we'll it. Up. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll hang <yeah>. it up. <laughs> but uh, no, here we are, oh, man, starting good. the Lord of the Rings. and Hard to believe. Yeah. Hard to believe. Well, tell us a little bit about these uh, libraries and, and kind of where they are and, and, you know, what's happened with the Red Book. Okay. The original Red Book has not been preserved, but many copies were made, especially of the first volume, for the use of the descendants of the children of Master Samwise. The most important copy, however, has a different history. It was kept at Great Smiles, but it was written in Gondor, probably at the request of the great-grandson of Peregrine, and completed in SR 1592. Fourth Age 172. Its southern scribe appended this note. Findigil, King's Writer, finished this work in 4172. It is an exact copy in all details of the Thane's book in Minas Tirith. That book was a copy made at the request of King Alessar, 
of the Red Book of the Perianath, and was brought to him by the Thane Peregrine when he retired to Gondor in 464. Mm. The Thane's book was thus the first copy made of the Red Book, and contained much that was later omitted or lost. In Minas Tirith it received much annotation and many corrections, especially of names, words, and quotations in the Elvish languages. And there was added to it an abbreviated version of those parts of the tale of Aragorn and Arwen, which lie outside the account of the war. Hmm. The full tale is stated to have been written by Barahir, grandson of the steward Faramir, sometime after the passing of the king. But the chief importance of Findigil's copy is that it alone contains the whole of Bilbo's Translations from the Elvish. These three volumes were found to be a work of great skill and learning, in which, between 1403 and 1418, he had used all the sources available to him in Rivendell, both living and written. But since they were little used by Frodo, being almost entirely concerned with the Elder Days, no more is said of them here. He's even created the frame narrative for the Silmarillion, if it ever I know. Isn't that great? <laughs> That's what he's Isn't doing that right great? there. That's awesome. It's, I it's, love that. It's a great uh, little... Um, little way to build interest in, in the yeah. Silmarillion, because remember, that's you yeah. really wanted to write it, you, you wanted really wanted that. to publish it. And Absolutely. can you imagine being a reader reading this for the first time and thinking, oh, I want to know about that stuff. Oh, Where, where's those translations from the Elvish. I want that. Yeah. Right. When am I going to yeah. get that? Tale of Aragorn and Arwen, when am I going to get that? Oh, you'll get that in the third one. You'll volume. get that at the, yeah, exactly, in Return of the King. The Appendices. Really good stuff. Uh, and again, it looks like clearly we have... Um, we have all the hobbits that, that, you know, the three hobbits that left the Shire and came back to thank for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Frodo yep. too, but he didn't really have much to do with these, uh, you know, this is with the, the preservation of the children of, the of Master yeah. Samwise. Yeah. We have the great grandson of Peregrine yep. and Mary, of course, uh, you know, having a lot to do with the library of Brandy Hall. So, right. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the I, last I love the little paragraph. Hint of, yep. I love the hint oh, of their connection with Gondor and Rohan too. You know, Pippin and Mary's yes. connections with Gond- yes. Gondor and Rohan. You know, it's a uh, foreshadowing of what's going to be coming in the story. But that's true. I guess we'll get to that in a couple of years, too. So I'm going to go ahead and read the last paragraph and then we'll uh, we'll wrap up. All right. At Great Smiles, the books were of less interest to Shire folk, though more important for larger history. None of them was written by Peregrine, but he and his successors collected many manuscripts written by scribes of Gondor, mainly copies or summaries of histories or legends relating to Elendil and his heirs. Only here in the Shire were to be found extensive materials for the history of Numenor and the arising of Sauron. It was probably at great smiles that the tale of years was put together with the assistance of material collected by Mariatic. Though the dates given are often conjectural, especially for the Second Age, they deserve attention. It is probable that Mariatic obtained assistance and information from Rivendell, which he visited more than once. There, though Elrond had departed, his sons long remained together with some of the high elven folk. It is said that Celeborn went to dwell there after the departure of Galadriel. But there is no record of the day when at last he sought the Grey Havens, and with him went the last living memory of the Elder Days in Middle-earth. Wow. Man, there's a bittersweet ending there, isn't it? There is, yeah. I mean, the the idea of the very last living memory of the the Elder Days. The very last living memory of the Elder Days, Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a reminder of uh, of something we talked about at the beginning of this episode that that mm, Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. is a, a story about the the end and the passing the away of the Elder Days. Yeah, you're right. It really is. And you know we'll we'll talk about this later. Uh, but you know this is a nice nice piece about Elrond, uh, his sons, mm-hmm. as well as Celeborn and Galadriel, and and what happens with them at the end. You know we we learn that Galadriel leaves. We learn that Elrond leaves, and we learn that Celeborn stays for a while, and we learn that. 
Elrond's sons stay, and we don't know anything about them. Mm, that's but we a good know point. that Celeborn yeah. does eventually leave, but we don't know about his sons. Uh, that is yeah. to say, not Celeborn's sons, but Elrond's sons. Elrond's sons, yeah. Yeah, you know, there's there's one other thing I, I, I think about when I when I think of this, um, you know, this idea of the end and the passing away of the Elder Days. Um, we've talked before about the idea that the Lord of the Rings is sort of a, an origin story for the human race, you yeah. know, how men came to be the rulers of Arda. Um, exactly. We've, we've actually been told recently that we haven't spent enough time on this, but um, if we haven't yet, <laughs> let's make it abundantly clear. Uh, that oh, is yeah. one of the major themes of this story is the, the passing right. away of the, you know, the old things, the, the supernatural things, the elves and all that mm-hmm. stuff and, and the rise of the dominion of men. Um, yeah. And so each uh, age you know, is that in miniature, really. I mean, when we go from that's the, true. The, yeah. You know, Iluvatar is less involved and then the Valar are less involved and then the elves are less yeah. involved. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, actually, now that you say that, I, I, there's this wonderful Latin phrase that I learned from reading something by Tom Shippey recently, uh, mm-hmm. uh, translatio imperii, um, okay. which is basically Latin for transfer of power. And it's the idea oh, that yeah. history is a series of transfers of power from, you know, like you can okay. go back and look at like oh, of course. The, the, the empire of Alexander the Great, you know, the Hellenistic empire mm-hmm. passing to the Roman empire, or then maybe the yeah. Roman empire passing to like the Catholic church or to Charlemagne or something. Um, yeah. And that is what Lord of the Rings is about. It's a, it's a transfer of power from right. to men. And you're right. It that is. happens in miniature in every age. And, mm. uh, and, mm-hmm. and the end of the third age is a big one. It is a big one. So, it is the biggest one because it is to us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that the world is now, you know, given in a way. And it's still ours. It is for until for better or worse. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, that at long last wraps it up for our discussion on the prologue. But be sure to come back next week when we finally start reading a long expected party. Yes, but before we move on to Barlaman's bag, we want to take a minute to remind you about the Fellowship of the Podcast. That's our family of supporters over at Patreon. We're a few hundred dollars away from our next goal of setting up a Discord server and allowing mm-hmm. you a chance to listen in live during these recordings. That, that, that might have been a mistake. <laughs> it might have been, but it's out there now. So Yeah, uh, it is. It's going to be fun. That'll give you a chance to laugh at our mistakes and even get a sneak peek in an upcoming episode. Yeah, but that is only for our patrons. So be sure to check that out at patreon.com slash prancingponypod. If you sign up at the uh, Gift of Gondor level or higher, you'll also get access to exclusive content like a full-length bonus episode every quarter, and short postscripts to each episode, including this one. Now, there's another way you can help us, too. You can check out the official library pages at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com, where we've put together a set of links for our listeners to all the Tolkien books we've ever mentioned on the show. And you can also give us a hand by simply posting a review on iTunes. This increases our visibility, which means more new listeners, more great questions for Barlamin, more discussion on social media, and just a bigger, more vibrant Tolkien community. Absolutely. And folks, please don't forget to share us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, wherever you hang out uh, and wherever you find Tolkien fans. Tell them about our show. Uh, With that, it's time to see what old Barlaman has in the mailbag for us tonight. Sean? All right. Well, we've got a good one today, folks. Uh, Since we've just started talking for the first time about the origins and the history of hobbits, it seems fitting that we've got uh, a couple of questions about where they came from and where they go. (laughs) As as listeners of the Prancing Pony podcast know, one topic we seem to keep coming back to is the fate of various races after they die. Well, now we've been asked that question about hobbits by two separate listeners. So, of course, Abby R. wrote to us on Facebook and asked, so the elves are reborn and rehoused in their own bodies if they are killed. Men's souls leave Middle-earth after death, and there is a legend that Aule has a place for the dwarves in the halls of Mandos. Does Tolkien ever cover where hobbits go? Is there a place Mm. in the halls for the little folk? 
And then about two <laughs> weeks after Abby wrote to us with that question, Angela W. from Lancaster, Ohio, wrote to the mailbox and asked, Tolkien stated that hobbits are an ancient people and the closest to men. My question, or rather questions, are, did hobbits exist in the first age? And do they also share the gift of men where, upon death, they pass beyond the confines of Arda? Hmm. So earlier in the episode, we talked about the fact that hobbits are a subset of men. So I, I think we've got right. that part of it covered. And I think we can probably uh -huh. extrapolate from that what happens to them after they die. But Alan, I think you answered Abby on Facebook when she asked this. So why don't you take the lead on this one? Yeah, I did. So let me go ahead and take it here. Uh, it is a great question, of course, uh, but Tolkien doesn't specifically address the afterlife of hobbits. Uh, as we've talked about, he does tell us in this prologue, though, that hobbits are relatives of men, and he reminds us in a couple of his letters that hobbits are a branch of the human race. Now, it's, it's an inference, but it's a very logical inference. Given that relationship, uh, we can certainly infer that hobbit souls leave Middle-earth, that they too have received the gift of men. They pass beyond the circles of the world, and like men, they have the ability to shape things beyond the music. That's important. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think we see some of that shaping really clearly throughout The Lord of the Rings. I think you're right. And I think we'll probably point it out when we do see those. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right on. I mean, I think that that's the answer. I think that wraps it up pretty neatly. Uh, if they're men, they must have the same fate as men. And nobody, yeah. not even Manwe, not even Mandas, could change that. No. The one thing I would add is to address Angela's question of whether hobbits existed in the first age. Um, mm -hmm. The prologue actually does say that the beginning of Hobbits lies far back in the Elder Days that are now lost and forgotten. Well, right. if you remember in right. the Silmarillion, that's... Elder Days is a synonym for the First Age, and, and yep. it is defined that way in the index. So that tells us that, yes, Hobbits did come into being at some point in the First Age. But since they weren't noticed by anybody for a long time, we don't really know what they were doing. <laughs> that's true. They were just flying under the radar, really. Yep. Or tunneling under the radar. <laughs> <laughs> oh man well folks that on that terrible joke uh, wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast please be sure to join us again next week when we take part in a little gossip at the pub with Ham Gamgee <laughs> we'll be covering the first part of a long expected party thank you all for listening and thank you for making our common room on Facebook such a fun place to spend time we want all of you to be a part of this conversation and it doesn't stop when the episode ends you can see the comments, the questions, the corrections, and more on Facebook at the Prancing Pony Podcast, on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. And a special thank you to our patrons at the Kierdan's contribution tier. To May in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, and Emily in Texas. Really, thank you all. And make sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, actually two last things. One, please don't get used to this extended time. We will not be running two hours the rest of this season. No. Uh, just yeah. be aware of that. I wanted to set expectations. But one last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and most of all, your genealogical research tying you to the Tooks or Brandy Box <laughs> to Barnuman at theprancingponypodcast.com. And, well, we'll try to get into our next show. Well, however long we have had, it is still far too short a time to spend amongst such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends.